When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Prologue of The Phantom of the Opera. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tizera de Matos. Prologue in which the author of this singular work informs the reader how he acquired the certainty that the opera ghost really existed. The opera ghost really existed. He was not, as was long believed, a creature of the imagination of the artists, the superstition of the managers, or a product of the absurd and impressionable brains of the young ladies of the ballet, their mothers, the box-keepers, the cloak-room attendants, or the concierge. Yes, he existed in flesh and blood, although he assumed the complete appearance of a real phantom, that is to say, of a spectral shade. When I began to ransack the archives of the National Academy of Music, I was at once struck by the surprising coincidences between the phenomena ascribed to the ghost and the most extraordinary and fantastic tragedy that ever excited the Paris upper classes and I soon conceived the idea that this tragedy might reasonably be explained by the phenomena in question. The events do not date more than thirty years back, and it would not be difficult to find at the present day, in the foyer of the ballet, old men of the highest respectability, men upon whose word one could absolutely rely who would remember as though they happened yesterday the mysterious and dramatic conditions that attended the kidnapping of Christine Day, the disappearance of the Vicomte de Chagny, and the death of his elder brother, Count Philippe, whose body was found on the bank of the lake that exists in the lower cellars of the opera on the Rue Scribe's side. But none of those witnesses had until that day thought that there was any reason for connecting the more or less legendary figure of the opera ghost with that terrible story. The truth was slow to enter my mind, puzzled by an inquiry that at every moment was complicated by events which, at first sight, might be looked upon as superhuman, and more than once I was within an ace of abandoning a task in which I was exhausting myself in the hopeless pursuit of a vain image. At last I received the proof that my presentiments had not deceived me, and I was rewarded for all my efforts on the day when I acquired the certainty that the opera ghost was more than a mere shade. On that day I had spent long hours over the memoirs of a manager, the light and frivolous work of the too sceptical Micharmin who, during his term at the opera, understood nothing of the mysterious behavior of the ghost, and who was making all the fun of it that he could at the very moment when he became the first victim of the curious financial operation that went on inside the magic envelope. I had just left the library in despair when I met the delightful acting manager of our National Academy, who stood chatting on a landing with a lively and well-groomed little old man, to whom he introduced me gaily. 
the acting manager knew all about my investigations and how eagerly and unsuccessfully i had been trying to discover the whereabouts of the examining magistrate in the famous chagny case monsieur Foire. nobody knew what had become of him alive or dead and here he was back from canada where he had spent fifteen years and the first thing he had done on his return to paris was to come to the secretarial offices at the opera and ask for a free seat the little old man was Monsieur Four himself. We spent a good part of the evening together, and he told me the whole Chagny case as he understood it at the time. He was bound to conclude in favor of the madness of the Viscount and the accidental death of the elder brother, for lack of evidence to the contrary. But he was nevertheless persuaded that a terrible tragedy had taken place between the two brothers in connection with Christine Day. He could not tell me what became of Christine or the Viscount. When I mentioned the ghost, he only laughed. He too had been told of the curious manifestations that seemed to point to the existence of an abnormal being residing in one of the most mysterious corners of the opera, and he knew the story of the envelope, but he had never seen anything in it worthy of his attention as magistrate in charge of the Chagny case and it was as much as he had done to listen to the evidence of a witness who appeared of his own accord and declared that he had often met the ghost this witness was none other than the man whom all paris called the persian and who was well known to every subscriber to the opera the magistrate took him for a visionary i was immensely interested by this story of the persian i wanted if there were still time to find this valuable and eccentric witness my luck began to improve, and I discovered him in his little flat in the Rue de Rivoli, where he had lived ever since, and where he died five months after my visit. I was at first inclined to be suspicious, but when the Persian had told me, with childlike candor, all that he knew about the ghost, and had handed me the proofs of the ghost's existence, including the strange correspondence of Christine Day, to do as I pleased with, I was no longer able to doubt no the ghost was not a myth i have i know been told that this correspondence may have been forged from first to last by a man whose imagination had certainly been fed on the most seductive tales but fortunately i discovered some of christine's writing outside the famous bundle of letters and on a comparison between the two all my doubts were removed i also went into the past history of the persian and found that he was an upright man incapable of inventing a story that might have defeated the ends of justice this moreover was the opinion of the more serious people who at one time or other were mixed up in the chagny case who were friends of the chagny family to whom i showed all my documents and set forth all my inferences in this connection I should like to print a few lines which I received from General D. Sir, I cannot urge you too strongly to publish the results of your inquiry. I remember perfectly that, a few weeks before the disappearance of that great singer Christine Day, and the tragedy which threw the whole of the Faubourg Saint-Germain into mourning, there was a great deal of talk in the foyer of the ballet on the subject of the ghost, and I believe that it only ceased to be discussed in consequence of the later affair that excited us all so greatly. But if it be possible, as, after hearing you, I believe, to explain the tragedy through the ghost, 
then i beg you sir to talk to us about the ghost again mysterious though the ghost may at first appear he will always be more easily explained than the dismal story in which malevolent people have tried to picture two brothers killing each other who had worshipped each other all their lives believe me etc etc lastly with my bundle of papers in hand i once more went over the ghost's vast domain the huge building which he had made his kingdom all that my eyes saw all that my mind perceived corroborated the persian's documents precisely and a wonderful discovery crowned my labors in a very definite fashion it will be remembered that later when digging in the substructure of the opera before burying the phonographic records of the artist's voice the workman laid bare a corpse well i was at once able to prove that this corpse was that of the opera ghost i made the acting manager put this proof to the test with his own hand and it is now a matter of supreme indifference to me if the papers pretend that the body was that of a victim of the commune the wretches who were massacred under the commune in the cellars of the opera were not buried on this side i will tell where their skeletons can be found in a spot not very far from that immense crypt which was stocked during the siege with all sorts of provisions i came upon this track just when i was looking for the remains of the opera ghost which i should never have discovered but for the unheard-of chance described above but we will return to the corpse and what ought to be done with it for the present i must conclude this very necessary introduction by thanking monsieur mifroid who was the commissary of police called in for the first investigations after the disappearance of christine day Monsieur Remy, the late secretary, Monsieur Mercier, the late acting manager, Monsieur Gabriel, the late chorus master, and more particularly Madame la Baronne de Castelot-Barbejac, who was once the little Meg of the story, and who is not ashamed of it, the most charming star of our admirable corps de ballet, the eldest daughter of the worthy Madame Giry, now deceased, who had charge of the ghost's private box all these were of the greatest assistance to me and thanks to them i shall be able to reproduce those hours of sheer love and terror in their smallest details before the reader's eyes and i should be ungrateful indeed if i omitted while standing on the threshold of this dreadful and veracious story to thank the present management of the opera which has so kindly assisted me in all my inquiries and monsieur Massauger in particular together with monsieur gabion the acting manager and that most amiable of men the architect entrusted with the preservation of the building who did not hesitate to lend me the works of charles garnier although he was almost sure that i would never return them to him lastly i must pay a public tribute to the generosity of my friend and former collaborator monsieur j le Croze, who allowed me to dip into his splendid theatrical library and to borrow the rarest editions of books by which he set great store signed gaston leroux end of prologue chapter one of the phantom of the opera by Gaston Leroux, translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Is It the Ghost? 
It was the evening on which Messieurs Dibienne and Poligny, the managers of the opera, were giving a last gala performance to mark their retirement. Suddenly the dressing-room of La Sorelli, one of the principal dancers, was invaded by half a dozen young ladies of the ballet, who had come up from the stage after dancing Poliette. They rushed in amid great confusion, some giving vent to forced and unnatural laughter, others to cries of terror. Sorelli, who wished to be alone for a moment to run through the speech which she was to make to the resigning managers, looked around angrily at the mad and tumultuous crowd. It was little Jama, the girl with the tip-tilted nose, the forget-me-not eyes, the rose-red cheeks, and the lily-white neck and shoulders, who gave the explanation in a trembling voice. "'It's the ghost!' and she locked the door. Sorelli's dressing-room was fitted up with official commonplace elegance, a pier-glass, a sofa, a dressing-table, and a cupboard or two provided the necessary furniture. On the walls hung a few engravings, relics of the mother who had known the glories of the old opera in the Rue Le Pelletier, portraits of Vestry, Gordel, Dupont, Bigottinini, but the room seemed a palace to the brats of the corps de ballet, who were lodged in common dressing-rooms, where they spent their time singing, quarrelling, smacking the dressers and hairdressers, and buying one another glasses of cassis, beer, or even rum, until the call-boy's bell rang. Sorelli was very superstitious. She shuddered when she heard little Jama speak of the ghost, call her a silly little fool, and then, as she was the first to believe in ghosts in general, and the opera ghost in particular, at once asked for details. "'Have you seen him?' "'As plainly as I see you now,' said little Jama, whose legs were giving way beneath her, and she dropped with a moan into a chair. Thereupon little Giry, the girl with eyes black as sloves, hair black as ink, a swarthy complexion and a poor little skin stretched over poor little bones little giry added if that's the ghost he's very ugly oh yes oh yes cried the chorus of ballet girls and they all began to talk together the ghost had appeared to them in the shape of a gentleman in dress clothes who had suddenly stood before them in the passage without their knowing where he came from he seemed to have come straight through the wall pooh said one of them who had more or less kept her head you see the ghost everywhere and it was true for several months there had been nothing discussed at the opera but this ghost in dress clothes who stalked about the building from top to bottom like a shadow who spoke to nobody to whom nobody dared speak and who vanished as soon as he was seen no one knowing how or where as became a real ghost he made no noise in walking People began by laughing and making fun of this spectre, dressed like a man of fashion, or an undertaker. But the ghost legend soon swelled to enormous proportions among the corps de ballet. All the girls pretended to have met this supernatural being more or less often, and those who laughed the loudest were not the most at ease. When he did not show himself, he betrayed his presence or his passing by accident, comic or serious, for which the general superstition held him responsible. Had any one met with a fall, or suffered a practical joke at the hands of one of the other girls, or lost a powder-puff, it was at once the fault of the ghost, of the opera ghost. After all, who had seen him? You meet so many men in dress-clothes at the opera who are not ghosts. 
but this dress suit had a peculiarity of its own it covered a skeleton at least so the ballet girls said and of course it had a death's head was all this serious the truth is that the idea of the skeleton came from the description of the ghost given by joseph bouquet the chief scene-shifter who had really seen the ghost he had run up against the ghost on the little staircase by the footlights which leads to the cellars he had seen him for a second for the ghost had fled and to anyone who cared to listen to him he said he is extraordinarily thin and his dress-coat hangs on a skeleton frame his eyes are so deep that you can hardly see the fixed pupils you just see two big black holes as in a dead man's skull his skin which is stretched across his bones like a drumhead is not white but a nasty yellow his nose is so little worth talking about that you can't see its side face and the absence of that nose is a horrible thing to look at all the hair he has is three or four long dark locks on his forehead and behind his ears this chief scene-shifter was a serious sober steady man very slow at imagining things his words were received with interest and amazement and soon there were other people to say that they too had met a man in dress clothes with a death's head on his shoulders sensible men who had wind of the story began by saying that joseph bouquet had been the victim of a joke played by one of his assistants and then one after the other there came a series of incidents so curious and so inexplicable that the very shrewdest people began to feel uneasy for instance a fireman is a brave fellow he fears nothing least of all fire well the fireman in question who had gone to make a round of inspection in the cellars and who it seems had ventured a little farther than usual suddenly reappeared on the stage pale scared trembling with his eyes starting out of his head and practically fainted in the arms of the proud mother of little jama and why because he had seen coming toward him at the level of his head but without a body attached to it a head of fire and as i said a fireman is not afraid of fire the fireman's name was pampin the corps de ballet was flung into consternation at first sight this fiery head in no way corresponded with joseph bouquet's description of the ghost but the young ladies soon persuaded themselves that the ghost had several heads which he changed about as he pleased and of course they at once imagined that they were in the greatest danger once a fireman did not hesitate to faint leaders and front row and back row girls alike had plenty of excuses for the fright that made them quicken their pace when passing some dark corner or ill-lighted corridor sorelli herself on the day after the adventure of the fireman placed a horseshoe on the table in front of the stage doorkeeper's box which every one who entered the opera otherwise than as a spectator must touch before setting foot on the first tread of the staircase this horseshoe was not invented by me any more than any other part of this story alas and may still be seen on the table in the passage outside the stage door keeper's box when you enter the opera through the court known as the cour de l'administration to return to the evening in question it's the ghost little jama had cried 
An agonizing silence now reigned in the dressing-room. Nothing was heard but the hard breathing of the girls. At last Jama, flinging herself upon the farthest corner of the wall, with every mark of real terror on her face, whispered, "'Listen!' Everybody seemed to hear a rustling outside the door. There was no sound of footsteps. It was like light silk sliding over the panel. Then it stopped. Sorelli tried to show more pluck than the others. She went up to the door, and in a quavering voice asked, "'Who's there?' But nobody answered. Then, feeling all eyes upon her, watching her last movement, she made an effort to show courage, and said very loudly, "'Is there anyone behind the door?' "'Oh, yes, yes, of course there is!' cried that little dried plum of a megerie, heroically holding Sorelli back by her gauze skirt. "'Whatever you do, don't open the door! Oh, Lord, don't open the door!' But Sorelli, armed with a dagger that never left her, turned the key and drew back the door, while the ballet girls retreated to the inner dressing-room, and Megerie sighed, "'Mother! Mother!' Sorelli looked into the passage bravely. It was empty. A gas-flame in its glass prison cast a red and suspicious light into the surrounding darkness without succeeding in dispelling it, and the dancer slammed the door again with a deep sigh. No, she said, there is no one there. Still we saw him, Jama declared, returning with timid little steps to her place beside Sorelli. He must be somewhere prowling about. I shan't go back to dress. We had better all go down to the foyer together, at once, for the speech, and we will come up again together. And the child reverently touched the little coral finger-ring which she wore as a charm against bad luck while Sorelli, stealthily, with the tip of her pink right thumbnail, made a St. Andrew's cross on the wooden ring which adorned the fourth finger of her left hand. She said to the little ballet girls, "'Come, children, pull yourselves together. I dare say no one has ever seen the ghost.' "'Yes, yes, we saw him, we saw him just now,' cried the girls. "'He had his death head and his dress-coat, just as when he appeared to Joseph Bouquet. And Gabriel saw him, too.' said Yama, only yesterday, yesterday afternoon, in broad daylight. Gabriel, the chorus-master. Why, yes, yes, didn't you know? And he was wearing his dress-clothes in broad daylight. Who, Gabriel? Why, no, the ghost. Certainly, Gabriel told me so himself. That's what he knew him by. Gabriel was in the stage manager's office. Suddenly the door opened, and the Persian entered. "'You know the Persian has the evil eye?' "'Oh, yes,' answered the little ballet girls in chorus, warding off ill luck by pointing their forefinger and little finger at the absent Persian, while their second and third fingers were bent on the palm and held down by the thumb. "'And you know how superstitious Gabriel is,' continued Jama. "'However, he is always polite. When he meets the Persian he just puts his hand in his pocket and touches his keys.' Well, the moment the Persian appeared in the doorway, Gabriel gave one jump from his chair to the lock of the cupboard so as to touch iron. In doing so, he tore a whole skirt of his overcoat on a nail. Hurrying to get out of the room, he banged his forehead against a hat-peg and gave himself a huge bump. 
then suddenly stepping back he skinned his arm on the screen near the piano he tried to lean on the piano but the lid fell on his hands and crushed his fingers he rushed out of the office like a madman slipped on the staircase and came down the whole of the first flight on his back i was just passing with mother we picked him up he was covered with bruises and his face was all over blood we were frightened out of our lives but all at once he began to thank providence that he had got off so cheaply then he told us what had frightened him he had seen the ghost behind the persian the ghost with the death's head just like joseph bouquet's description jama had told her story ever so quickly as though the ghost were at her heels and was quite out of breath at the finish a silence followed while sorelli polished her nails in great excitement it was broken by little Giry, who said, "'Joseph Bouquet would do better to hold his tongue.' "'Why should he hold his tongue?' asked somebody. "'That's mother's opinion,' replied Meg, lowering her voice and looking all about her as though fearing lest other ears than those present might overhear. "'And why is it your mother's opinion?' "'Hush! Mother says the ghost doesn't like being talked about.' "'And why does your mother say so?' "'Because—because—nothing.' This reticence exasperated the curiosity of the young ladies, who crowded round little Giry, begging her to explain herself. They were there, side by side, leaning forward simultaneously in one movement of entreaty and fear, communicating their terror to one another, taking a keen pleasure in feeling their blood freeze in their veins. "'I swore not to tell,' gasped Meg. But they left her no peace, and promised to keep the secret— until Meg, burning to say all she knew, began with her eyes fixed on the door. "'Well, it's because of the private box.' "'What private box?' "'The ghost box.' "'Has the ghost a box? Oh, do tell us, do tell us.' "'Not so loud,' said Meg. "'It's box five, you know, the box on the grand tier, next to the stage box on the left.' "'Oh, nonsense!' "'I tell you it is. Mother has charge of it.' but you swear you won't say a word? Of course, of course. Well, that's the ghost's box. No one has had it for over a month, except the ghost, and orders have been given at the box office that it must never be sold. And does the ghost really come there? Yes. Then somebody does come. Why, no, the ghost comes, but there is nobody there. The little ballet girls exchanged glances. If the ghost came to the box he must be seen, because he wore a dress coat and a death's head. This was what they tried to make Meg understand, but she replied, "'That's just it. The ghost is not seen, and he has no dress coat and no head. All that talk about his death head and his head of fire is nonsense. There's nothing in it. You only hear him when he is in the box. Mother has never seen him, but she has heard him.' mother knows because she gives him his program. Sorelli interfered. Giri, child, you're getting at us. Thereupon little Giri began to cry. I ought to have held my tongue, if mother ever came to know, but I was quite right. Joseph Bouquet had no business to talk of things that didn't concern him. It will bring him bad luck. Mother was saying so last night. There was a sound of hurried and heavy footsteps in the passage, and a breathless voice cried, "'Cecile! Cecile! Are you there?' "'It's mother's voice,' said Jama. "'What's the matter?' She opened the door. 
a respectable lady built on the lines of a pomeranian grenadier burst into the dressing-room and dropped groaning into a vacant armchair her eyes rolled madly in her brick-dust-colored face how oh, awful she said how oh, awful what what joseph bouquet what about him joseph bouquet is dead the room became filled with exclamations with astonished outcries with scared requests for explanations yes he was found hanging in the third floor cellar it's the ghost little jerry blurted out as though in spite of herself but she at once corrected herself with her hands pressed to her mouth no no i didn't say it i didn't say it all around her her panic-stricken companions repeated under their breaths yes it must be the ghost sorelli was very pale i shall never be able to recite my speech she said ma jama gave her opinion while she emptied a glass of liquor that happened to be standing on a table the ghost must have something to do with it the truth is that no one ever knew how joseph bouquet met his death the verdict at the inquest was natural suicide in his memoirs of manager monsieur mochamon one of the joint managers who succeeded messieurs dibian and poligny describes the incident as follows a grievous accident spoiled the little party which messieurs dibian and poligny gave to celebrate their retirement i was in the manager's office when mercier the acting manager suddenly came darting in he seemed half mad and told me that the body of a scene-shifter had been found hanging in the third cellar under the stage between a farmhouse and a scene from the roy de lahore i shouted come and cut him down by the time i had rushed down the staircase and the jacob's ladder the man was no longer hanging from his rope so this is an event that mosharman thinks natural a man hangs at the end of a rope they go to cut him down the rope has disappeared Oh, Monsieur Moncharmin found a very simple explanation. Listen to him. It was just after the ballet, and leaders and dancing girls lost no time in taking their precautions against the evil eye. There you are. Picture the corps de ballet scuttling down the Jacob's ladder and dividing the suicide's rope among themselves in less time than it takes to write when on the other hand i think of the exact spot where the body was discovered the third cellar underneath the stage imagine that somebody must have been interested in seeing that rope disappear after it had effected its purpose and time will show if i am wrong the horrid news soon spread all over the opera where joseph bouquet was very popular the dressing-rooms emptied and the ballet girls crowding around sorelli like timid sheep around their shepherdess made for the foyer through the ill-lit passages and staircases trotting as fast as their little pink legs could carry them end of chapter one chapter two of the phantom of the opera by gaston leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: The New Margarita. On the first landing, Sorelli ran against the Comte de Chagny, who was coming upstairs. The Count, who was generally so calm, seemed greatly excited. "I was just going to call you," he said, taking off his hat. "Oh, Sorelli, what an evening!" and christine day what a triumph impossible said meg shiri six months ago she used to sing like a crock 
but do let us get by my dear count continues the brat with a saucy curtsey we are going to inquire after a poor man who was found hanging by the neck just then the acting manager came fussing past and stopped when he heard this remark what he exclaimed roughly have you girls heard already well please forget about it for tonight and above all don't let monsieur de bien and monsieur poligny hear it would upset them too much on their last day they all went on to the foyer of the ballet which was already full of people the comte de chagnier was right no gala performance ever equalled this one all the great composers of the day had conducted their own works in turns for and kraus had sung and on that evening christine day had revealed her true self for the first time to the astonished and enthusiastic audience gounod had conducted the funeral march of a marionette Ryer his beautiful overture to Siguar, saint saints the dance macabre and reverie oriental massenet an unpublished hungarian march gourat his carnival delibe the valse lente from sylvia and the pizzicati from coppelia mademoiselle kraus had sung the bolero in the vespri siciliani and mademoiselle denise bloch the drinking song in lucrezia borgia but the real triumph was reserved for christine day who had begun by singing a few passages from romeo and juliet it was the first time that the young artist sang in this work of gounod which had not been transferred to the opera and which was revived at the opera comique after it had been produced at the old theatre lyrique by madame carvalho those who heard her say that her voice in these passages was seraphic but this was nothing to the superhuman notes that she gave forth in the prison scene and the final trio in faust which she sang in the place of la carlotta who was ill no one had ever heard or seen anything like it day revealed a new margarita that night a margarita of a splendor a radiance hitherto unsuspected the whole house went mad rising to its feet shouting cheering clapping while christine sobbed and fainted in the arms of her fellow-singers and had to be carried to her dressing-room a few subscribers however protested why had so great a treasure been kept from them all that time till then christine day had played a good sea-ball to carlotta's rather too splendidly material margarita and it had needed carlotta's incomprehensible and inexcusable absence from this gala night for the little day at a moment's warning to show all that she could do in a part of the program reserved for the spanish diva well what the subscribers wanted to know was why had debienne and poligny applied to-day when carlotta was taken ill did they know of her hidden genius and if they knew of it why had they kept it hidden and why had she kept it hidden oddly enough she was not known to have a professor of singing at that moment she had often said she meant to practice alone for the future the whole thing was a mystery the comte de chagny standing up in his box listened to all this frenzy and took part in it by loudly applauding philippe georges marie comte de chagny was just forty-one years of age he was a great aristocrat and a good-looking man above middle height and with attractive features in spite of his hard forehead and his rather cold eyes he was exquisitely polite to the women and a little haughty to the men who did not always forgive him for his successes in society he had an excellent heart and an irreproachable conscience 
On the death of old Count Philibert, he became the head of one of the oldest and most distinguished families in France, whose arms dated back to the fourteenth century. The Chagnys owned a great deal of property, and when the old count, who was a widower, died, it was no easy task for Philippe to accept the management of so large an estate. His two sisters and his brother, Raoul, would not hear of a division, and waived their claim to their shares, leaving themselves entirely in Philippe's hands, as though the right of primogeniture had never ceased to exist. When the two sisters married on the same day, they received their portion from their brother, not as a thing rightfully belonging to them, but as a dowry for which they thanked him. The Comtesse de Chagny, ni de Morogi de la Martinia, had died in giving birth to Raoul, who was born twenty years after his elder brother. At the time of the old Count's death, Raoul was twelve years of age. Philippe busied himself actively with the youngster's education. He was admirably assisted in this work first by his sisters and afterward by an old aunt, the widow of a naval officer who lived at Brest and gave young Raoul a taste for the sea. The lad entered the board a training ship, finished his course with honors, and quietly made his trip round the world. Thanks to powerful influence, he had just been appointed a member of the official expedition on board the Raquin, which was to be sent to the Arctic Circle in search of the survivors of the D'Artois expedition, of whom nothing had been heard for three years. Meanwhile he was enjoying a long furlough, which would not be over for six months, and already the dowagers of the Faubourg Saint-Germain were pitying the handsome and apparently delicate stripling for the hard work in store for him. The shyness of the sailor-lad, I was almost saying his innocence, was remarkable. He seemed to have but just left the women's apron-strings. As a matter of fact, petted as he was by his two sisters and his old aunt, he had retained from this purely feminine education manners that were almost candid and stamped with a charm that nothing had yet been able to sully. He was a little over twenty-one years of age and looked eighteen. He had a small, fair moustache, beautiful blue eyes, and a complexion like a girl's. Philippe spoiled Raoul. To begin with, he was very proud of him and pleased to see a glorious career for his junior in the navy in which one of their ancestors, the famous Chagny de la Roche, had held the rank of admiral. He took advantage of the young man's leave of absence to show him Paris, with all its luxurious and artistic delights. The Count considered that at Raoul's age it is not good to be too good. Philippe himself had a character that was very well balanced in work and pleasure alike. His demeanor was always faultless, and he was incapable of setting his brother a bad example. He took him with him wherever he went. He even introduced him to the foyer of the ballet. I know that the Count was said to be on terms with Sorelli, but it could hardly be reckoned as a crime for this nobleman, a bachelor, with plenty of leisure, especially since his sisters were settled, to come and spend an hour or two after dinner in the company of a dancer, who, though not so very, very witty, had the finest eyes that ever were seen. And besides, there are places where a true Parisian, when he has the rank of the Comte de Chagny, is bound to show himself, and at that time the foyer of the ballet at the opera was one of those places. 
Lastly, Philippe would perhaps not have taken his brother behind the scenes of the opera if Raoul had not been the first to ask him, repeatedly renewing his request with a gentle obstinacy which the Count remembered at a later date. On that evening Philippe, after applauding the day, turned to Raoul and saw that he was quite pale. "'Don't you see,' said Raoul, "'that the woman's fainting?' "'You look like fainting yourself,' said the Count. "'What's the matter?' But Raoul had recovered himself and was standing up. "'Let's go and see,' he said. "'She never sang like that before.' The Count gave his brother a curious smiling glance and seemed quite pleased. They were soon at the door leading from the house to the stage. Numbers of subscribers were slowly making their way through. Raoul tore his gloves without knowing what he was doing, and Philippe had much too kind a heart to laugh at him for his impatience but he now understood why raoul was absent-minded when spoken to and why he always tried to turn every conversation to the subject of the opera they reached the stage and pushed through the crowd of gentlemen scene-shifters supers and chorus girls raoul leading the way feeling that his heart no longer belonged to him his face set with passion while count philippe followed him with difficulty and continued to smile at the back of the stage Raoul had to stop before the inrush of the little troop of ballet girls who blocked the passage which he was trying to enter. More than one chafing phrase darted from little made-up lips to which he did not reply, and at last he was able to pass, and dived into the semi-darkness of a corridor ringing with the name of Day, Day. The Count was surprised to find that Raoul knew the way. He had never taken him to Christine's himself, and came to the conclusion that Raoul must have gone there alone while the Count stayed talking in the foyer with Sorelli, who often asked him to wait until it was her time to go on, and sometimes handed him the little gaiters in which she ran down from her dressing-room to preserve the spotlessness of her satin dancing-shoes and her flesh-colored tights. Sorelli had an excuse. She had lost her mother. Postponing his usual visit to Sorelli for a few minutes, the Count followed his brother down the passage that led to Day's dressing-room, and saw that it had never been so crammed as on that evening, when the whole house seemed excited by her success and also by her fainting fit, for the girl had not yet come to, and the doctor of the theatre had just arrived at the moment when Raoul entered at his heels. Christine, therefore, received the first aid of the one, while opening her eyes in the arms of the other. The Count and many more remained crowding in the doorway. "'Don't you think, doctor, that those gentlemen had better clear the room?' asked Raoul coolly. "'There's no breathing here.' "'You're quite right,' said the doctor, and he sent everyone away except Raoul and the maid, who looked at Raoul with eyes of the most undisguised astonishment. She had never seen him before, and yet dared not question him, and the doctor imagined that the young man was only acting as he did because he had the right to. The viscount, therefore, remained in the room watching Christine as she slowly returned to life, while even the joint managers Debian and Poligny, who had come to offer their sympathy and congratulations, found themselves thrust into the passage among the crowd of dandies. The Comte de Chagny, who was one of those standing outside, laughed. Oh, 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 the rogue, the rogue, and he added under his breath, those youngsters with their schoolgirl airs, so he's a Chagny after all. He turned to go to Sorelli's dressing-room, 
but met her on the way with her little troop of trembling ballet girls as we have seen meanwhile christine day uttered a deep sigh which was answered by a groan she turned her head and saw raoul and started she looked at the doctor on whom she bestowed a smile then at her maid then at raoul again monsieur she said in a voice not much above a whisper who are you mademoiselle replied the young man kneeling on one knee and pressing a fervent kiss on the diva's hand i am the little boy who went into the sea to rescue your scarf christine again looked at the doctor and the maid and all three began to laugh raoul turned very red and stood up mademoiselle he said since you are pleased not to recognize me i should like to say something to you in private something very important when i am better do you mind and her voice shook you have been very good yes you must go said the doctor with his pleasantest smile leave me to attend to the mademoiselle i am not ill now said christine suddenly with strange and unexpected energy she rose and passed her hand over her eyelids thank you doctor i should like to be alone please go away all of you leave me i feel very restless this evening the doctor tried to make a short protest but perceiving the girl's evident agitation he thought the best remedy was not to thwart her and he went away saying to raoul outside she is not herself to-night she is usually so gentle then he said good-night and raoul was left alone the whole of this part of the theatre was now deserted the farewell ceremony was no doubt taking place in the foyer of the ballet raoul thought that day might go to it and he waited in the silent solitude even hiding in the favoring shadow of a doorway he felt a terrible pain at his heart and it was of this that he wanted to speak to day without delay suddenly the dressing-room door opened and the maid came out by herself carrying bundles he stopped her and asked how her mistress was the woman laughed and said that she was quite well but that he must not disturb her for she wished to be left alone and she passed on one idea alone filled raoul's burning brain of course day wished to be left alone for him had he not told her that he wanted to speak to her privately hardly breathing he went up to the dressing-room and with his ear to the door to catch her reply prepared to knock but his hand dropped he had heard a man's voice in the dressing-room saying in a curiously masterful tone christine you must love me and christine's voice infinitely sad and trembling as though accompanied by tears replied how can you talk like that when i sing only for you raoul leaned against the panel to ease his pain his heart which had seemed gone for ever returned to his breast and was throbbing loudly the whole passage echoed with its beating and raoul's ears were deafened surely if his heart continued to make such a noise they would hear it inside they would open the door and the young man would be turned away in disgrace what a position for a chagny to be caught listening behind a door he took his heart in his two hands to make it stop the man's voice spoke again are you very tired oh to-night i gave you my soul and i am dead christine replied your soul is a beautiful thing child replied the grave man's voice and i thank you no emperor ever received so fair a gift the angels wept to-night raoul heard nothing after that 
Nevertheless, he did not go away, but as though he feared lest he should be caught, he returned to his dark corner, determined to wait for the man to leave the room. At one and the same time he had learned what love meant, and hatred. He knew that he loved. He wanted to know whom he hated. To his great astonishment the door opened, and Christine Day appeared, wrapped in furs, with her face hidden in a lace veil, alone. She closed the door behind her, but Raoul observed that she did not lock it. She passed him. He did not even follow her with his eyes, for his eyes were fixed on the door, which did not open again. When the passage was once more deserted, he crossed it, opened the door of the dressing-room, went in, and shut the door. He found himself in absolute darkness. The gas had been turned out. "'There is someone here,' said Raoul, with his back against the closed door, in a quivering voice. "'What are you hiding for?' All was darkness and silence. Raoul heard only the sound of his own breathing. He quite failed to see that the indiscretion of his conduct was exceeding all bounds. "'You shan't leave this until I let you,' he exclaimed. "'If you don't answer, you are a coward, but I'll expose you.' And he struck a match. The blaze lit up the room. There was no one in the room. Raoul, first turning the key in the door, lit the gas jets. He went into the dressing-closet, opened the cupboards, hunted about, felt the walls with his moist hands. Nothing. "'Look here,' he said aloud. "'I am going mad!' He stood for ten minutes listening to the gas flaring in the silence of the empty room. Lover though he was, he did not even think of stealing a ribbon that would have given him the perfume of the woman he loved. He went out, not knowing what he was doing nor where he was going. At a given moment in his wayward progress an icy draught struck him in the face. He found himself at the bottom of a staircase, down which behind him a procession of workmen were carrying a sort of stretcher, covered with a white sheet. "'Which is the way out, please?' he asked one of the men. "'Straight in front of you. The door is open. But let us pass.' Pointing to the stretcher, he asked mechanically, "'What's that?' The workman answered, "'That is Joseph Bouquet, who was found in the third cellar, hanging between a farmhouse and a scene from the Roy de Lahore. He took off his hat, fell back to make room for the procession, and went out. End of chapter 2「Chapter Three of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux, translated by Alexander Tezira de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: The Mysterious Reason During this time the farewell ceremony was taking place. I have already said that this magnificent function was being given on the occasion of the retirement of Monsieur Debien and Monsieur Poligny, who had determined to die game, as we say nowadays. They had been assisted in the realization of their ideal, though melancholy, program by all that counted in the social and artistic world of Paris. All these people met after the performance in the foyer of the ballet, where Sorelli waited for the arrival of the retiring managers with a glass of champagne in her hand and a little prepared speech at the tip of her tongue. Behind her the members of the corps de ballet, young and old, discussed the events of the day in whispers or exchanged discreet signals with their friends, a noisy crowd of whom surrounded the supper-tables arranged along the slanting floor. 
A few of the dancers had already changed into ordinary dress, but most of them wore their skirts of gossamer gauze, and all had thought it the right thing to put on a special face for the occasion. All, that is, except little Jama, whose fifteen summers, happy age, seemed already to have forgotten the ghost and the death of Joseph Bouquet. She never ceased to laugh and chatter, to hop about and play practical jokes, until Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny appeared on the steps of the foyer, when she was severely called to order by the impatient Sorelli. Everybody remarked that the retiring managers looked cheerful, as is the Paris way. None will ever be a true Parisian who has not learned to wear a mask of gaiety over his sorrows and one of sadness, boredom, or indifference over his inward joy. You know that one of your friends is in trouble. Do not try to console him. He will tell you that he is already comforted. But should he have met with good fortune, be careful how you congratulate him. He thinks it so natural that he is surprised that you should speak of it. In Paris our lives are one masked ball, and the foyer of the ballet is the last place in which two men so knowing as Messieurs de Bienne and Monsieur Poligny would have made the mistake of betraying their grief, however genuine it might be. And they were already smiling rather too broadly upon Sorelli, who had begun to recite her speech, when an exclamation from that little madcap of Ijama broke the smile of the manager so brutally that the expression of distress and dismay that lay beneath it became apparent to all eyes. The opera ghost! Jama yelled these words in a tone of unspeakable terror, and her finger pointed among the crowd of dandies to a face so pallid, so lugubrious, and so ugly, with two such deep black cavities under the straddling eyebrows, that the death's head in question immediately scored a huge success. The opera ghost! The opera ghost! Everyone laughed and pushed his neighbor and wanted to offer the opera ghost a drink, but he was gone. He had slipped through the crowd, and the others vainly hunted for him, while two old gentlemen tried to calm little Jama, and while little Giry stood screaming like a peacock. Sorelli was furious. She had not been able to finish her speech. The managers had kissed her, thanked her, and run away as fast as the ghost himself. No one was surprised of this, for it was known that they were to go through the same ceremony on the floor above, in the foyer of the singers, and that finally they were themselves to receive their personal friends for the last time in the great lobby outside the manager's office, where a regular supper would be served. Here they found the new managers, Monsieur Armand Moncharmin and Monsieur Firmin Richard, whom they hardly knew. Nevertheless, they were lavish in protestations of friendship, and received a thousand flattering compliments in reply, so that those of the guests who had feared that they had a rather tedious evening in store for them at once put on brighter faces. The supper was almost gay, and a particularly clever speech of the representative of the government, mingling the glories of the past with the successes of the future, caused the greatest cordiality to prevail. The retiring managers had already handed over to their successors the two tiny master keys, which opened all the doors, 
thousands of doors of the opera house and those little keys the object of general curiosity were being passed from hand to hand when the attention of some of the guests was diverted by their discovery at the end of the table of that strange wan and fantastic face with the hollow eyes which had already appeared in the foyer of the ballet and been greeted by little jama's exclamation the opera ghost there sat the ghost as natural as could be except that he neither ate nor drank those who began by looking at him with a smile ended by turning away their heads for the sight of him at once provoked the most funereal thoughts no one repeated the joke of the foyer no one exclaimed there's the opera ghost he himself did not speak a word and his very neighbors could not have stated at what precise moment he had sat down between them, but everyone felt that if the dead did ever come and sit at the table of the living, they could not cut a more ghastly figure. The friends of Fermin Richard and Armand Moncharmin thought that this lean and skinny guest was an acquaintance of Debienne's or Poligny's, while Debienne's and Poligny's friends believed that the cadaverous individual belonged to Fermin Richard and Armand Moncharmin's party. The result was that no request was made for an explanation, no unpleasant remark, no joke in bad taste which might have offended this visitor from the tomb. A few of those present who knew the story of the ghost and the description of him given by the chief scene-shifter, they did not know of Joseph Bouquet's death, thought in their own minds that the man at the end of the table might easily have passed for him, and yet, according to the story, the ghost had no nose, and the person in question had. But M. Moncharmin declares in his memoirs that the guest's nose was transparent, long thin and transparent are his exact words i for my part will add that this might very well apply to a false nose m moncharmin may have taken for transparency what was only shininess everybody knows that orthopedic science provides beautiful false noses for those who have lost their noses naturally or as the result of an operation did the ghost really take a seat at the manager's supper-table that night, uninvited? And can we be sure that the figure was that of the opera ghost himself, who would venture to assert as much? I mention the incident not because I wish for a second to make the reader believe, or even to try to make him believe, that the ghost was capable of such a sublime piece of impudence, but because, after all, the thing is impossible." M. Armand Moncharmin, in chapter 11 of his memoir, says, When I think of this first evening, I cannot separate the secret confided to us by Messieurs Debian and Poligny in their office from the presence at our supper of that ghostly person whom none of us knew. What happened was this. Messieurs Debian and Poligny, sitting at the centre of the table, had not seen the man with the death's head. Suddenly he began to speak the ballet girls are right he said the death of that poor bouquet is perhaps not so natural as people think debienne and poligny gave a start is bouquet dead they cried yes replied the man or the shadow of a man quietly he was found this evening hanging in the third cellar between a farmhouse and a scene from the roy de lahore 
The two managers, or rather ex-managers, at once rose and stared strangely at the speaker. They were more excited than they need have been, that is to say, more excited than anyone need be by the announcement of the suicide of a chief scene-shifter. They looked at each other. They had both turned whiter than the tablecloth. At last Debian made a sign to Messieurs Richard and Moncharmin. Poligny muttered a few words of excuse to the guests, and all four went into the manager's office. I leave Monsieur Moncharmin to complete the story. In his memoirs he says, Messieurs Debian and Poligny seemed to grow more and more excited, and they appeared to have something very difficult to tell us. First they asked us if we knew the man, sitting at the end of the table, who had told them of the death of Joseph Bouquet, and when we answered in the negative they looked still more concerned. They took the master-keys from our hands, stared at them for a moment, and advised us to have new locks made with the greatest secrecy for the rooms, closets, and presses that we might wish to have hermetically closed. They said this so funnily that we began to laugh and to ask if there were thieves at the opera. They replied that there was something worse, which was the ghost. We began to laugh again, feeling sure that they were indulging in some joke that was intended to crown our little entertainment. Then, at their request, we became serious, resolving to humor them and to enter into the spirit of the game. They told us that they never would have spoken to us of the ghost if they had not received formal orders from the ghost himself to ask us to be pleasant to him and to grant any request that he might make. However, in their relief at leaving a domain where that tyrannical shade held sway, they had hesitated until the last moment to tell us this curious story, which our skeptical minds were certainly not prepared to entertain. But the announcement of the death of Joseph Bouquet had served them as a brutal reminder that whenever they had disregarded the ghost's wishes, some fantastic or disastrous event had brought them to a sense of their dependence. During those unexpected utterances made in a tone of the most secret and important confidence, I looked at Richard. Richard, in his student days, had acquired a great reputation for practical joking, and he seemed to relish the dish which was being served up to him in his turn. He did not miss a morsel of it, though the seasoning was a little gruesome because of the death of Bouquet. He nodded his head sadly while the others spoke, and his features assumed the air of a man who bitterly regretted having taken over the opera, now that he knew that there was a ghost mixed up in the business. I could think of nothing better than to give him a servile imitation of this attitude of despair. However, in spite of all our efforts, we could not, at the finish, help bursting out laughing in the faces of Messieurs de Bien and Poligny, who, seeing us pass straight from the gloomiest state of mind to one of the most insolent merriment, acted as though they thought that we had gone mad. The joke became a little tedious, and Richard asked half seriously and half in jest, "'But, after all, what does this ghost of yours want?' Monsieur Poligny went to his desk and returned with a copy of the memorandum book. The memorandum book begins with the well-known words saying that the management of the opera shall give to the performance of the National Academy of Music the splendor that becomes the first lyric stage in France, and ends with clause 98, which says that the privilege can be withdrawn if the manager infringes the conditions stipulated in the memorandum book. This is followed by the conditions which are four in number. 
the copy produced by Monsieur Poligny was written in black ink, and exactly similar to that in our position, except that at the end it contained a paragraph in red ink and in a queer, labored handwriting, as though it had been produced by dipping the heads of matches into the ink, the writing of a child that has never got beyond the downstrokes and has not learned to join its letters. This paragraph ran word for word as follows. 5. Or if the manager in any month delay for more than a fortnight the payment of the allowance which he shall make to the opera ghost, an allowance of twenty thousand francs a month, say two hundred and forty thousand francs a year. Mr. Poligny pointed with a hesitating finger to this last clause, which we certainly did not expect. Is this all? Does he not want anything else? asked Richard with the greatest coolness. Yes, he does, replied Poligny, and he turned over the pages of the memorandum book until he came to the clause specifying the days on which certain private boxes were to be reserved for the free use of the President of the Republic, the ministers, and so on. At the end of this clause a line had been added also in red ink. Box five on the grand tier shall be placed at the disposal of the opera ghost for every performance. When we saw this, there was nothing else for us to do but to rise from our chairs, shake our two predecessors warmly by the hand, and congratulate them on thinking of this charming little joke, which proved that the old French sense of humor was never likely to become extinct. Richard added that he now understood why Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny were retiring from the management of the National Academy of Music. Business was impossible with so unreasonable a ghost. "'Certainly two hundred and forty thousand francs are not to be picked up for the asking,' said Monsieur Perligny, without moving a muscle of his face. "'And have you considered what the loss over Box Five meant to us? We did not sell it once, and not only that, but we had to return the subscription. Why, it's awful! Why, we really can't work to keep ghosts. We prefer to go away.' "'Yes,' echoed Monsieur de Bien. "'We prefer to go away.' let us go and he stood up richard said but after all it seems to me that you were much too kind to the ghost if i had such a troublesome ghost as that i should not hesitate to have him arrested but how where they cried in chorus we have never seen him but when he comes to his box we have never seen him in his box then sell it sell the opera ghost box well gentlemen try it Thereupon all four left the office. Richard and I had never laughed so much in our lives. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Box 5 Armand Moncharmin wrote such voluminous memoirs during the fairly long period of his co-management that we may well ask if he ever found time to attend to the affairs of the opera, otherwise than by telling what went on there. Monsieur Moncharmin did not know a note of music, but he called the Minister of Education and Fine Arts by his Christian name, had dabbled a little in society journalism, and enjoyed a considerable private income lastly he was a charming fellow and showed that he was not lacking in intelligence for as soon as he made up his mind to be a sleeping partner in the opera 
he selected the best possible active manager and went straight to Fermin Richard. Fermin Richard was a very distinguished composer who had published a number of successful pieces of all kinds and who liked nearly every form of music and every sort of musician. Clearly, therefore, it was the duty of every sort of musician to like Monsieur Fermin Richard. The only things to be said against him were that he was rather masterful in his ways and endowed with a very hasty temper. The first few days which the partners spent at the opera were given over to the delight of finding themselves the head of so magnificent an enterprise, and they had forgotten all about the curious, fantastic story of the ghost when an incident occurred that proved to them that the joke, if joke it were, was not over. Monsieur Firmin Richard reached his office that morning at eleven o'clock. His secretary, Monsieur Remy, showed him half a dozen letters, which he had not opened because they were marked private. One of the letters had at once attracted Richard's attention not only because the envelope was addressed in red ink, but because he seemed to have seen the writing before. He soon remembered that it was the red handwriting in which the memorandum book had been so curiously completed. He recognized the clumsy childish hand. He opened the letter and read, Dear Mr. Manager, I am sorry to have to trouble you at a time when you must be so very busy, renewing important engagements, signing fresh ones, and generally displaying your excellent taste. I know what you have done for Carlotta, Sorelli, and little Jama, and for a few others whose admirable qualities of talent or genius you have suspected. Of course, when I use these words, I do not mean to apply them to Larcalata, who sings like a squirt, and who ought never to have been allowed to leave the ambassadors and the Café Jacquin, nor to La Sorelli, who owes her success mainly to the coach-builders, nor to little Jama, who dances like a calf in a field. And I am not speaking of Christine Day, either, though her genius is certain, whereas your jealousy prevents her from creating any important part. When all is said, you are free to conduct your little business as you think best, are you not? All the same, I should like to take advantage of the fact that you have not yet turned Christine Day out of doors by hearing her this evening in the part of Cybele, as that of Margarita has been forbidden her since her triumph of the other evening, and I will ask you not to dispose of my box to-day, nor on the following days, for I cannot end this letter without telling you how disagreeably surprised I have been once or twice to hear on arriving at the opera that my box had been sold at the box-office by your orders. I did not protest, first, because I dislike scandal, and second, because I thought that your predecessors, Messieurs Debienne and Poligny, who were always charming to me, had neglected, before leaving, to mention my little fads to you. I have now received a reply from those gentlemen to my letter asking for an explanation, and this reply proves that you know all about my memorandum book, and consequently that you are treating me with outrageous contempt. If you wish to live in peace, you must not begin by taking away my private box. Believe me to be, dear manager, without prejudice to these little observations, your most humble and obedient servant, opera ghost the letter was accompanied by a cutting from the agony column of the revue theatrale which ran o oh, g there is no excuse for r and m we told them and left your memorandum book in their hands kind regards monsieur firman richard had hardly finished reading this letter when monsieur armand moncharmin entered carrying one exactly similar they looked at each other and burst out laughing they are keeping up the joke 
said Monsieur Richard, but I don't call it funny. What does it all mean? asked Monsieur Moncharmin. Do they imagine that because they have been managers of the opera we are going to let them have a box for an indefinite period? I am not in the mood to let myself be laughed at long, said Fermin Richard. It's harmless enough, observed Armand Moncharmin. What is it they really want? A box for tonight? Monsieur Fermin Richard told his secretary to send box five on the grand tier to Monsieur Debienne and Poligny if it was not sold. It was not. It was sent off to them. Debienne lived at the corner of the Rue Scribe and the Boulevard des Capucines, Poligny in the Rue Aubert. Auguste's two letters had been posted at the Boulevard des Capucines post office, as Moncharmin remarked after examining the envelopes. "'You see?' said Richard. They shrugged their shoulders and regretted that two men of that age should amuse themselves with such childish tricks. "'They might have been civil for all that,' said Moncharmin. "'Did you notice how they treat us with regard to Carlotta, Sorelli, and little Jama?' "'Why, my dear fellow, these two are mad with jealousy, to think that they went to the expense of an advertisement in the Revue Theatrale. Have they nothing better to do?' "'By the way,' said Moncharmin, "'they seem to be greatly interested in that little Christine Day. "'You know as well as I do that she has the reputation of being quite good,' said Richard. "'Reputations are easily obtained,' replied Moncharmin. "'Haven't I a reputation for knowing all about music, and I don't know one key from another?' "'Don't be afraid. You never had that reputation,' Richard declared. Thereupon he ordered the artist to be shown in, who, for the last two hours, had been walking up and down outside the door behind which fame and fortune, or dismal, awaited them. The whole day was spent in discussing, negotiating, signing, or cancelling contracts, and the two overworked managers went to bed early, without so much as casting a glance at Box 5 to see whether Monsieur Debienne and Monsieur Poligny were enjoying the performance. Next morning the managers received a card of thanks from the ghost. Dear Mr. Manager, thanks. Charming evening. Day exquisite. Choruses want waking up. Carlotta, a splendid commonplace instrument. Will write you soon for the 240,000 francs, or 233,424 francs, 70 centima, to be correct. Monsieur de Bayan and Poligny have sent me the 6,575 francs, representing the first ten days of my allowance for the current year. Their privileges finished on the evening of the tenth instant. Kind regards, O.G. On the other hand, there was a letter from Messieurs de Bienne and Poligny. Gentlemen, we are much obliged for your kind thought of us, but you will easily understand that the prospect of again hearing Faust, pleasant though it is to ex-managers of the opera, cannot make us forget that we have no right to occupy Box 5 on the Grand Tier, which is the exclusive property of him of whom we spoke to you when we went through the memorandum book with you for the last time. See Clause 98 final paragraph. Accept, gentlemen, etc., etc. "'Oh, those fellows are beginning to annoy me,' shouted Fermin and Richard, snatching up the letter. And that evening Box 5 was sold. The next morning Messieurs Richard and Moncharmin, on reaching their office, found an inspector's report relating to an incident that had happened the night before in Box 5. I give the essential part of the report.' 
I was obliged to call in a municipal guard twice this evening to clear Box 5 in the Grand Tier, once at the beginning and once in the middle of the second act. The occupants who arrived as the curtain rose on the second act created a regular scandal by their laughter and their ridiculous observations. There were cries of hush all around them, and the whole house was beginning to protest when the box-keeper came to fetch me. I entered the box and said what I thought necessary. The people did not seem to me to be in their right mind, and they made stupid remarks. I said that if the noise was repeated I should be compelled to clear the box. The moment I left I heard the laughing again, with fresh protest from the house. I returned with a municipal guard who turned them out. They protested, still laughing, saying they would not go unless they had their money back. At last they became quiet, and I allowed them to enter the box again. The laughter at once recommenced, and this time I had them turned out definitely. "'Send for the inspector,' said Richard to his secretary, who had already read the report and marked it with blue pencil. Monsieur Remy, the secretary, had foreseen the order and called the inspector at once. "'Tell us what happened,' said Richard bluntly. The inspector began to splutter and referred to the report. "'Well, but what were those people laughing at?' asked Moncharmin. "'They must have been dining, sir, and seemed more inclined to lark about than to listen to good music. The moment they entered the box they came out again and called the box-keeper, who asked them what they wanted. They said, "'Look in the box. There's no one there, is there?' "'No,' said the woman. "'Well,' said they, "'when we went in we heard a voice saying that the box was taken.' Monsieur Moncharmin could not help smiling as he looked at Monsieur Richard, but Monsieur Richard did not smile. He himself had done too much in that way in his time not to recognize in the inspector's story all the marks of one of those practical jokes which begin by amusing and end by enraging the victims. The inspector, to curry favor with Monsieur Moncharmin, who was smiling, thought it best to give a smile too. A most unfortunate smile. Monsieur Richard glared at his subordinate, who thenceforth made it his business to display a face of utter consternation. "'However, when the people arrived,' roared Richard, "'there was no one in the box, was there?' "'Not a soul, sir, not a soul, nor in the box on the right, nor in the box on the left. Not a soul, sir, I swear.' The box-keeper told it me often enough, which proves that it was all a joke. "'Oh, you agree, do you?' said Richard. "'You agree. It's a joke, and you think it's funny, no doubt.' "'I think it in very bad taste, sir.' "'And what did the box-keeper say?' "'Oh, she just said that it was the opera ghost. That's all she said.' And the inspector grinned, but he soon found that he had made a mistake in grinning, for the words had no sooner left his mouth than Monsieur Richard, from gloomy, became furious.' "'Send for the box-keeper!' he shouted. "'Send for her! This minute! This minute! And bring her in to me here, and turn all those people out!' The inspector tried to protest, but Richard closed his mouth with an angry order to hold his tongue. Then, when the wretched man's lips seemed shut forever, the manager commanded him to open them once more. "'Who is this opera ghost?' he snarled, but the inspector was by this time incapable of speaking a word. He managed to convey, by a despairing gesture, that he knew nothing about it, or rather that he did not wish to know. "'Have you ever seen him? Have you seen the opera ghost?' The inspector, by means of a vigorous shake of the head, denied ever having seen the ghost in question. "'Very well,' said Monsieur Richard coldly. 
the inspector's eyes started out of his head as though to ask why the manager had uttered that ominous very well because i'm going to settle the account of anyone who has not seen him explained the manager as he seems to be everywhere i can't have people telling me that they see him nowhere i like people to work for me when i employ them having said this monsieur richard paid no attention to the inspector and discussed various matters of business with his acting manager who had entered the room meanwhile the inspector thought he could go and was gently oh so gently sidling toward the door when monsieur richard nailed the man to the floor with a thundering stay where you are monsieur remy had sent for the box-keeper to the rue de provence close to the opera where she was engaged as a porteress she soon made her appearance what's your name madame giry you know me well enough sir i'm the mother of little giry little meg what this was said in so rough and solemn a tone that for a moment monsieur richard was impressed he looked at madame giry in her faded shawl her worn shoes her old taffeta dress and dingy bonnet it was quite evident from the manager's attitude that he either did not know or could not remember having met Madame Giry, nor even little Giry, nor even little Meg. But Madame Giry's pride was so great that the celebrated box-keeper imagined that everybody knew her. Never heard of her, the manager declared. But that's no reason, Madame Giry, why I shouldn't ask you what happened last night to make you and the inspector call in a municipal guard i was just wanting to see you sir and talk to you about it so that you mightn't have the same unpleasantness as monsieur de bien and monsieur de poligny they wouldn't listen to me either at first i'm not asking you about all that i'm asking what happened last night madame giry turned purple with indignation never had she been spoken to like that she rose as though to go gathering up the folds of her skirt and waving the feathers of her dingy bonnet with dignity but changing her mind she sat down again and said in a haughty voice i'll tell you what happened the ghost was annoyed again thereupon as monsieur richard was on the point of bursting out monsieur moncharmin interfered and conducted the interrogatory whence it appeared that madame giry thought it quite natural that a voice should be heard to say that a box was taken when there was nobody in the box she was unable to explain this phenomenon which was not new to her except by the intervention of the ghost nobody could see the ghost in his box but everybody could hear him she had often heard him, and they could believe her, for she always spoke the truth. They could ask Monsieur de Bien and Monsieur Poligny, and anybody who knew her, and also Monsieur Isidore Shaw, who had had a leg broken by the ghost. "'Indeed,' said Moncharmin, interrupting her. "'Did the ghost break poor Isidore Shaw's leg?' Madame Giry opened her eyes with astonishment at such ignorance. However, she consented to enlighten those two poor innocents, the thing had happened in Monsieur de Bien and Monsieur Poligny's time, also in Box Five, and also during a performance of Faust. Madame Giry coughed, cleared her throat. It sounded as though she were preparing to sing the whole of Guénaud's score, and began, "'It was like this, sir. That night Monsieur Manera and his lady, the jewellers in the Rue Mogador, were sitting in the front of the box, with their great friend Monsieur Isidore Sock sitting behind madame minera mephistopheles was singing madame Giry here burst into song herself katharina while you play at sleeping and then monsieur minera heard a voice in his right ear his wife was on his left 
saying, Ha-ha, Julie's not playing at sleeping. His wife happened to be called Julie. So Monsieur Minera turns to the right to see who is talking to him like that. Nobody there. He rubs his ear and asks himself if he's dreaming. Then Mephistopheles went on with his serenade. But uh, perhaps I'm boring you, gentlemen. No, no, go on. You are too good, gentlemen, with a smirk. Well, then, Mephistopheles went on with his serenade. Madame Jury, bursting into song again, Saint, unclose thy portals holy, and accord the bliss to a mortal bending lowly of a pardon kiss. And then Monsieur Minera again hears the voice in his right ear saying, this time, Ha ha! Julie wouldn't mind according a kiss to Isidore. Then he turns around again, but this time to the left, and what do you think he sees? Isidore, who had taken his lady's hand and was covering it with kisses through the little round place in the glove, like this gentleman, rapturously kissing the bit of palm left bare in the middle of her thread gloves, then they had a lively time between them. Bang! Bang! Monsieur Minera, who was big and strong, like you, Monsieur Richard, gave two blows to Monsieur Isidore Jacques, who was small and weak, like Monsieur Moncharmin, saving his presence. There was a great uproar. People in the house shouted, That will do! Stop them! He'll kill him! Then, at last, Monsieur Isidore Jacques managed to run away. Then the ghost had not broken his leg? asked Moncharmin a little vexed that his figure had made so little impression on Madame Jury. "'He did break it for him, sir,' replied Madame Jury haughtily. "'He broke it for him on the grand staircase, which he ran down too fast, sir, and it will be long before the poor gentleman will be able to go up it again.' "'Did the ghost tell you what he said in Monsieur Minera's right ear?' asked Moncharmin, with a gravity which he thought exceedingly humorous. "'No, sir. It was Monsieur Minera himself, so—' "'But you have spoken to the ghost, my good lady?' "'As I'm speaking to you now, my good sir,' Madame Jury replied. "'And when the ghost speaks to you, what does he say?' "'Well, he tells me to bring him a footstool.' This time Richard burst out laughing, as did Moncharmin and Remy, the secretary. Only the inspector, warned by experience, was careful not to laugh, while Madame Jury ventured to adopt an attitude that was positively threatening.' "'Instead of laughing,' she cried indignantly, "'you'd do better to do as Monsieur Poligny did, who found out for himself.' "'Found out about what?' asked Moncharmin, who had never been so much amused in his life. "'About the ghost, of course. Look here,' she suddenly calmed herself, feeling that this was a solemn moment in her life. "'Look here,' she repeated. "'They were playing La Juive. Monsieur Poligny thought he would watch the performance from the ghost-box.' Well, when Leopold cries, Let us fly, you know, and Eliezer stops them and says, Whither go ye? Well, Monsieur Poligny, I was watching him from the back of the next box, which was empty. Monsieur Poligny got up and walked out quite stiffly, like a statue, and before I had time to ask him, Whither go ye? Like Eliezer, he was down the staircase, but without breaking his leg. "'Still, that doesn't let us know how the opera ghost came to ask you for a footstool,' insisted Monsieur Moncharmin. "'Well, from that evening no one tried to take the ghost's private box from him. The manager gave orders that he was to have it at each performance, and whenever he came he asked me for a footstool.' "'Tut, tut! A ghost asking for a footstool? Then this ghost of yours is a woman.' 
No, the ghost is a man. How do you know? He has a man's voice. Oh, such a lovely man's voice. This is what happens. When he comes to the opera, it's usually in the middle of the first act. He gives three little taps on the door of box five. The first time I heard those three taps, when I knew there was no one in the box, you can think how puzzled I was. I opened the door, listened, looked, nobody, and then I heard a voice say, Madame Jules, my poor husband's name was Jules, a footstool, please. Saving your presence, gentlemen, it made me feel all overish-like. But the voice went on, Don't be frightened, Madame Jules, I'm the opera ghost and the voice was so soft and kind that I hardly felt frightened. The voice was sitting in the corner chair on the right, in the front row. "'Was there anyone in the box on the right of box five? asked Moncharmin. "'No. Box seven and box three, the one on the left, were both empty. The curtain had only just gone up.' "'And what did you do?' "'Well, I brought the footstool. Of course it wasn't for himself he wanted it, but for his lady.' but I never heard her nor saw her. Eh, what? So now the ghost is married? The eyes of the two managers traveled from Madame Jury to the inspector, who, standing behind the box-keeper, was waving his arms to attract their attention. He tapped his forehead with a distressful forefinger to convey his opinion that the widow Jules Jury was most certainly mad, a piece of pantomime which confirmed Monsieur Richard in his determination to get rid of an inspector who kept a lunatic in his service. Meanwhile the worthy lady went on about her ghost, now painting his generosity. At the end of the performance he always gives me two francs, sometimes five, sometimes even ten, when he has been many days without coming. Only since people have begun to annoy him again he gives me nothing at all. "'Excuse me, my good woman,' said Moncharmin, while Madame Jury tossed the feathers in her dingy hat at this persistent familiarity. "'Excuse me, how does the ghost manage to give you your two francs?' "'Why, he leaves them on the little shelf in the box, of course. I find them with the programme which I always give him. Some evenings I find flowers in the box, a rose that must have dropped from his lady's bodice, for he brings a lady with him sometimes. One day they left a fan behind them. "'Oh, the ghost left a fan, did he? And what did you do with it?' "'Well,' I brought it back to the box next night. Here the inspector's voice was raised. You've broken the rules. I shall have to fine you, Madame Jury. Hold your tongue, you fool, muttered Monsieur Fermin Richard. You brought back the fan, and then? Well, then they took it away with them, sir. It was not there at the end of the performance, and in its place they left me a box of English sweets, which I'm very fond of. That's one of the ghost's pretty thoughts. That will do, Madame Jury. You can go. When Madame Jury had bowed herself out with the dignity that never deserted her, the manager told the inspector that they had decided to dispense with that old madwoman's services, and when he had gone, in his turn, they instructed the acting manager to make up the inspector's accounts. Left alone, the managers told each other of the idea which they both had in mind, which was that they should look into that little matter of Box 5 themselves. End of chapter 4
Translated by Alexander Tizera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Enchanted Violin. Christine Day, owing to intrigues to which I will return later, did not immediately continue her triumph at the opera. After the famous gala night, she sang once at the Duchess de Zurich's, but this was the last occasion on which she was heard in private. She refused, without plausible excuse, to appear at a charity concert to which she had promised her assistance. She acted throughout as though she were no longer the mistress of her own destiny, and as though she feared a fresh triumph. She knew that the Comte de Chagny, to please his brother, had done his best on her behalf with Monsieur Richard, and she wrote to thank him and also to ask him to cease speaking in her favor. Her reason for this curious attitude was never known. Some pretended that it was due to overweening pride, others spoke of her heavenly modesty. But people on the stage are not so modest as all that, and I think that I shall not be far from the truth if I ascribe her action simply to fear. Yes, I believe that Christine Day was frightened by what had happened to her. I have a letter of Christine's, it forms part of the Persian's collection, relating to this period, which suggests a feeling of absolute dismay. I don't know myself when I sing, writes the poor child. She showed herself nowhere, and the Vicomte de Chagny tried in vain to meet her. He wrote to her, asking to call upon her, but despaired of receiving a reply when one morning she sent him the following note. Monsieur, I have not forgotten the little boy who went into the sea to rescue my scarf. I feel that I must write to you today when I am going to Piraf's in fulfillment of a sacred duty. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the death of my poor father, whom you knew and who was very fond of you. He is buried there with his violin in the graveyard of the little church, at the bottom of the slope where we used to play as children, beside the road where, when we were a little bigger, we said good-bye for the last time. The Vicomte de Chagny hurriedly consulted a railway guide, dressed as quickly as he could, wrote a few lines for his valet to take to his brother, and jumped into a cab which brought him to the Gare Parnasse, just in time to miss the morning train. He spent a dismal day in town, and did not recover his spirits until the evening, when he was seated in his compartment in the Brittany Express. He read Christine's note over and over again, smelling its perfume, recalling the sweet pictures of his childhood, and spent the rest of that tedious night journey in feverish dreams that began and ended with Christine Day. Day was breaking when he alighted at Lanyon. He hurried to the diligence for Perros Gourec. He was the only passenger. He questioned the driver, and learned that on the evening of the previous day a young lady who looked like a Parisian had gone to Perros and put up at the inn known as the Setting Sun. The nearer he drew to her, the more fondly he remembered the story of the little Swedish singer. Most of the details are still unknown to the public. There was once, in a little market-town not far from Uppsala, a peasant who lived there with his family, digging the earth during the week and singing in the choir on Sundays. This peasant had a little daughter to whom he taught the musical alphabet before she knew how to read. Day's father was a great musician, perhaps without knowing it. Not a fiddler throughout the length and breadth of Scandinavia played as he did. His reputation was widespread, and he was always invited to set the couples dancing at weddings and other festivals. His wife died when Christine was entering upon her sixth year. 
Then the father, who cared only for his daughter and his music, sold his patch of ground and went to Uppsala in search of fame and fortune. He found nothing but poverty. He returned to the country, wandering from fair to fair, strumming his Scandinavian melodies, while his child, who never left his side, listened to him in ecstasy or sang to his playing. One day at Yimby Fair Professor Valerius heard them and took them to Gothenburg. He maintained that the father was the first violinist in the world, and that the daughter had the making of a great artist. Her education and instruction were provided for. She made rapid progress and charmed everybody with her prettiness, her grace of manner, and her genuine eagerness to please. When Valerius and his wife went to settle in France, they took Day and Christine with them. Mama Valerius treated Christine as her daughter. As for Day, he began to pine away with homesickness. He never went out of doors in Paris, but lived in a sort of dream which he kept up with his violin. For hours at a time he remained locked up in his bedroom with his daughter, fiddling and singing very, very softly. Sometimes Mama Valerius would come and listen behind the door, wipe away a tear, and go downstairs again on tiptoe sighing for her Scandinavian skies. Day seemed not to recover his strength until the summer, when the whole family went to stay at Pyrrhus-Gurik, in a faraway corner of Brittany, where the sea was of the same color as in his own country. Often he would play his saddest tunes on the beach, and pretend that the sea stopped its roaring to listen to them. And then he induced Mama Valerius to indulge a queer whim of his, at the time of the pardons or Breton pilgrimages, the village festival and dances, he went off with his fiddle as in the old days and was allowed to take his daughter with him for a week. They gave the smallest hamlets music to last them for a year and slept at night in a barn, refusing a bed at the end, lying close together on the straw as when they were so poor in Sweden. At the same time they were very neatly dressed, made no collection, refused the halfpence offered them, and the people around could not understand the conduct of this rustic fiddler who tramped the roads with that pretty child who sang like an angel from heaven. They followed them from village to village. One day a little boy who was out with his governess made her take a longer walk than he intended, for he could not tear himself from the little girl whose pure, sweet voice seemed to bind him to her. They came to the shore of an inlet which is still called Tristrau, but which now, I believe, harbors a casino or something of the sort. At that time there was nothing but sky and sea and a stretch of golden beach, only there was also a high wind which blew Christine's scarf out to sea. Christine gave a cry and put out her arms, but the scarf was already far on the waves. Then she heard a voice say, "'It's all right. I'll go fetch your scarf out of the sea.' and she saw a little boy running fast, in spite of the outcries and the indignant protests of a worthy lady in black. The little boy ran into the sea, dressed as he was, and brought her back her scarf. Boy and scarf were both soaked through. The lady in black made a great fuss, but Christine laughed merrily and kissed the little boy, who was none other than the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, staying at Lanyon with his aunt. During the season they saw each other and played together almost every day. At the aunt's request, seconded by Professor Valerius, Day consented to give the young Viscount some violin lessons. In this way Raoul learned to love the same airs that had charmed Christine's childhood. They also both had the same calm and dreamy little cast of mind, 
they delighted in stories, in old Breton legends, and their favorite sport was to go and ask for them at the cottage doors like beggars. Ma'am, or kind gentleman, have you a little story to tell us, please? And it seldom happened that they did not have one given them, for nearly every old Breton granddame has, at least once in her life, seen the Corrigans dance by moonlight on the heather. But their great treat was in the twilight, in the great silence of the evening, after the sun had set in the sea, when day came and sat down by them on the roadside, and in a low voice, as though fearing lest he should frighten the ghosts whom he evoked, told them the legends of the land of the north, and the moment he stopped the children would ask for more. There was one story that began, A king sat in a little boat on one of those deep, still lakes that open like a bright eye in the midst of the Norwegian mountains, and another, Little Lotte thought of everything and nothing. Her hair was golden as the sun's rays, and her soul as clear and blue as her eyes. She wheeled her mother, was kind to her doll, took great care of her frock and her little red shoes and her fiddle, but most of all loved when she went to sleep to hear the angel of music. While the old man told this story, Raoul looked at Christine's blue eyes and golden hair, and Christine thought that Lotta was very lucky to hear the angel of music when she went to sleep. The angel of music played a part in all Daddy Dave's tales, and he maintained that every great musician, every great artist, received a visit from the angel at least once in his life. Sometimes the angel leans over their cradle, as happened to Lotta, and that is how there are little prodigies who play the fiddle at six better than men at fifty which you must admit is very wonderful. Sometimes the angel comes much later, because the children are naughty, and won't learn their lessons or practice their scales. And sometimes he does not come at all, because the children have a bad heart or a bad conscience. No one ever sees the angel, but he is heard by those who are meant to hear him. He often comes when they least expect him, when they are sad and disheartened, then their ears suddenly perceive celestial harmonies, a divine voice which they remember all their lives. Persons who are visited by the angel quiver with a thrill unknown to the rest of mankind, and they cannot touch an instrument or open their mouths to sing without producing sounds that put all other human sounds to shame. Then people who do not know that the angel has visited those persons say that they have genius. Little Christine asked her father if he had heard the angel of music, but Daddy Day shook his head sadly, and then his eyes lit up as he said, You will hear him one day, my child. When I am in heaven, I will send him to you. Daddy was beginning to cough at that time. Three years later, Raoul and Christine met again at Piros. Professor Valerius was dead, but his widow remained in France with Daddy Day and his daughter, who continued to play the violin and sing, rapping in their dream of harmony their kind patroness, who seemed henceforth to live on music alone. The young man, as he now was, had come to Piros on the chance of finding them, and went straight to the house in which they used to stay. He first saw the old man, and then Christine entered, carrying the tea-tray. She flushed at the sight of Raoul, who went up to her and kissed her. She asked him a few questions, performed her duties as hostess prettily, took up the tray again, and left the room. Then she ran into the garden and took refuge on a bench, 
a prey to feelings that stirred her young heart for the first time. Raoul followed her, and they talked till the evening, very shyly. They were quite changed, cautious as two diplomatists, and told each other things that had nothing to do with their budding sentiments. When they took leave of each other by the roadside, Raoul, pressing a kiss on Christine's trembling hand, said, "'Mademoiselle, I shall never forget you,' and he went away regretting his words, for he knew that Christine could not be the wife of the Vicomte de Chagny. As for Christine, she tried not to think of him, and devoted herself wholly to her art. She made wonderful progress, and those who heard her prophesied that she would be the greatest singer in the world. Meanwhile the father died, and suddenly she seemed to have lost with him her voice, her soul, and her genius. She retained just, but only just, enough of this to enter the conservatoire, where she did not distinguish herself at all attending the classes without enthusiasm, and taking a prize only to please old Mama Valerius, with whom she continued to live. The first time that Raoul saw Christine at the opera, he was charmed by the girl's beauty and by the sweet images of the past which it evoked, but was rather surprised at the negative side of her art. He returned to listen to her. He followed her in the wings. He waited for her behind a Jacob's ladder. He tried to attract her attention. More than once he walked after her to the door of her box, but she did not see him. She seemed, for that matter, to see nobody. She was all indifference. Raoul suffered, for she was very beautiful, and he was shy and dared not confess his love, even to himself. And then came the lightning flash of the gala performance. The heavens tore asunder, and an angel's voice heard upon earth for the delight of mankind and the utter capture of his heart and then there was that man's voice behind the door. You must love me, and no one in the room. Why did she laugh when he reminded her of the incident of the scarf? Why did she not recognize him? And why had she written to him? Piros was reached at last. Raoul walked into the smoky sitting-room of the setting sun, and at once saw Christine standing before him, smiling and showing no astonishment. So you have come, she said. I felt that I should find you here when I came back from Mass. Someone told me so at the church. Who? asked Raoul, taking her little hand in his. Why, my poor father, who is dead. There was a silence, and then Raoul asked, Did your father tell you that I love you, Christine, and that I cannot live without you? Christine blushed to the eyes and turned away her head. In a trembling voice she said, Me? You are dreaming, my friend and she burst out laughing, to put herself in countenance. "'Don't laugh, Christine, I am quite serious,' Raoul answered, and she replied gravely, "'I did not make you come to tell me such things as that.' "'You made me come, Christine. You knew that your letter would not leave me indignant, and that I should hasten to Piros. How can you have thought that, if you did not think I loved you?' "'I thought you would remember our games here as children, in which my father so often joined.' I really don't know what I thought. Perhaps I was wrong to write to you. This anniversary and your sudden appearance in my room at the opera the other evening reminded me of the time long past and made me write to you as the little girl that I then was. There was something in Christine's attitude that seemed to Raoul not natural. He did not feel any hostility in her. Far from it. The distressed affection shining in her eyes told him that. 
But why was this affection distressed? That was what he wished to know, and what was irritating him. When you saw me in your dressing-room, was that the first time you noticed me, Christine? She was incapable of lying. No, she said. I had seen you several times in your brother's box, and also on the stage. I thought so, said Raoul, compressing his lips. But then why, when you saw me in your room, at your feet, reminding you that I had rescued your scarf from the sea, why did you answer as though you did not know me, and also why did you laugh? The tone of these questions was so rough that Christine stared at Raoul without replying. The young man himself was aghast at the sudden quarrel which he had dared to raise at the very moment when he had resolved to speak words of gentleness, love, and submission to Christine. A husband, a lover with all rights, would talk no differently to a wife, a mistress who had offended him. But he had gone too far, and saw no other way out of the ridiculous position than to behave odiously. "'You don't answer,' he said angrily and unhappily. "'Well, I will answer for you. It was because there was someone in the room who was in your way, Christine, someone that you did not wish to know that you could be interested in anyone else.' "'If anyone was in my way, my friend,' Christine broke in coldly, if anyone was in my way that evening, it was yourself, since I told you to leave the room. Yes, so that you might remain with the other. What are you saying, monsieur? asked the girl excitedly. And to what other do you refer? To the man to whom you said, I sing only for you. Tonight I gave you my soul, and I am dead. Christine seized Raoul's arm and clutched it with a strength which no one would have suspected in so frail a creature. Then you were listening behind the door? Yes, because I love you, everything, and I heard everything. You heard what? And the young girl, becoming strangely calm, released Raoul's arm. He said to you, Christine, you must love me. At these words a deathly pallor spread over Christine's face. Dark rings formed round her eyes. She staggered and seemed on the point of swooning. Raoul darted forward with arms outstretched, but Christine had overcome her passing faintness and said in a low voice, "'Go on, go on, tell me all you heard.' At an utter loss to understand, Raoul answered, "'I heard him reply, when you said you had given him your soul, "'Your soul is a beautiful thing, child, and I thank you. "'No emperor ever received so fair a gift. "'The angels wept to-night.' Christine carried her hand to her heart, a prey to indescribable emotion. Her eyes stared before her like a madwoman's. Raoul was terror-stricken. But suddenly Christine's eyes moistened, and two great tears trickled like two pearls down her ivory cheek. Christine! Raoul! The young man tried to take her in his arms, but she escaped and fled in great disorder. While Christine remained locked in her room, Raoul was at his wit's end what to do. He refused to breakfast. He was terribly concerned and bitterly grieved to see the hours which he had hoped to find so sweet slip past without the presence of the young Swedish girl. Why did she not come to Rome with him, through the country, where they had so many memories in common? He heard that she had had a mass said that morning for the repose of her father's soul, and spent a long time praying in the little church and on the fiddler's tomb. Then, as she seemed to have nothing more to do at Piros, and, in fact, was doing nothing there, why did she not go back to Paris at once? Raoul walked away, dejectedly, to the graveyard in which the church stood, and was indeed alone among the tombs, reading the inscriptions. 
but when he turned behind the apse he was suddenly struck by the dazzling note of the flowers that straggled over the white ground. They were marvelous red roses that had blossomed in the morning, in the snow, giving a glimpse of life among the dead, for death was all around him. It also, like the flowers, issued from the ground, which had flung back a number of its corpses. Skeletons and skulls by the hundred were heaped against the wall of the church, held in position by a wire that left the whole gruesome stack visible. Dead men's bones arranged in rows, like bricks, to form the first course upon which the walls of the sacristy had been built. The door of the sacristy opened in the middle of that bony structure, as is often seen in old Breton churches. Raoul said a prayer for day, and then, painfully impressed by all those eternal smiles on the mouths of skulls, he climbed the slope and sat down on the edge of the heath overlooking the sea. The wind fell with evening. Raoul was surrounded by icy darkness, but he did not feel the cold. It was here, he remembered, that he used to come with little Christine to see the Corrigans dance at the rising of the moon. He had never seen any, though his eyes were good, whereas Christine, who was a little short-sighted, pretended that she had seen many. He smiled at the thought, and then suddenly gave a start. A voice behind him said, "'Do you think the Corrigans will come this evening?' It was Christine. He tried to speak. She put her gloved hand on his mouth. "'Listen, Raoul, I have decided to tell you something serious, very serious. Do you remember the legend of the Angel of Music?' "'I do, indeed,' he said. I believe it was here that your father first told it to us. And it was here that he said, When I am in heaven, my child, I will send him to you. Well, Raoul, my father is in heaven, and I have been visited by the angel of music. I have no doubt of it, replied the young man gravely, for it seemed to him that his friend, in obedience to a pious thought, was connecting the memory of her father with the brilliancy of her last triumph. Christine appeared astonished at the Vicomte de Chagny's coolness. "'How do you understand it?' she asked, bringing her pale face so close to his that he might have thought that Christine was going to give him a kiss. But she only wanted to read his eyes in spite of the dark. "'I understand,' he said, "'that no human being can sing as you sang the other evening without the intervention of some miracle. No professor on earth can teach you such accents as those.' You have heard the angel of music, Christine. Yes, she said solemnly, in my dressing-room. That is where he comes to give me my lessons daily. In your dressing-room? he echoed stupidly. Yes, that is where I have heard him, and I have not been the only one to hear him. Who else heard him, Christine? You, my friend. I? I heard the angel of music? Yes, the other evening it was he who was talking when you were listening behind the door. It was he who said, You must love me, but I then thought that I was the only one to hear his voice. Imagine my astonishment when you told me this morning that you could hear him too. Raoul burst out laughing. The first rays of the moon came and shrouded the two young people in their light. Christine turned on Raoul with a hostile air. Her eyes, usually so gentle, flashed fire. What are you laughing at? You think you heard a man's voice, I suppose. Well replied the young man, whose ideas began to grow confused in the face of Christine's determined attitude. "'It's you, Raoul, who say that. You, an old playfellow of my own, a friend of my father's. But you have changed since those days. What are you thinking of? 
I am an honest girl, Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny, and I don't lock myself up in my dressing-room with men's voices. If you had opened the door, you would have seen that there was nobody in the room. That's true. I did open the door when you were gone, and I found no one in the room. So you see? Well, the Viscount summoned up all his courage. Well, Christine, I think that somebody is making game of you. She gave a cry and ran away. He ran after her, but in a tone of fierce anger she called out, "'Leave me! Leave me!' and she disappeared. Raoul returned to the inn feeling very weary, very low-spirited, and very sad. He was told that Christine had gone to her bedroom, saying that she would not be down to dinner. Raoul dined alone, in a very gloomy mood. Then he went to his room and tried to read, went to bed and tried to sleep. There was no sound in the next room. The hours passed slowly. It was about half-past eleven when he distinctly heard someone moving, with a light, stealthy step, in the room next to his. Then Christine had not gone to bed. Without troubling for a reason, Raoul dressed, taking care not to make a sound, and waited. Waited for what? How could he tell? But his heart thumped in his chest when he heard Christine's door turn slowly on its hinges. Where could she be going at this hour, when everyone was fast asleep at Piros? Softly opening the door, he saw Christine's white form in the moonlight, slipping along the passage. She went down the stairs, and he leaned over the baluster above her. Suddenly he heard two voices in rapid conversation. He caught one sentence. "'Don't lose the key!' It was the landlady's voice. The door facing the sea was opened and locked again. Then all was still. Raoul ran back to his room and threw back the window. Christine's white form stood on the deserted quay. The first floor of the setting sun was at no great height, and a tree growing against the wall held out its branches to Raoul's impatient arms and enabled him to climb down unknown to the landlady. Her amazement, therefore, was all the greater when, the next morning, the young man was brought back to her half-frozen, more dead than alive, and when she learned that he had been found stretched at full length on the steps of the high altar of the little church. She ran at once to tell Christine, who hurried down, and with the help of the landlady did her best to revive him. He soon opened his eyes, and was not long in recovering, when he saw his friend's charming face leaning over him. A few weeks later, when the tragedy at the opera compelled the intervention of the public prosecutor, Monsieur Miffroy, the commissary of police, examined the Vicomte de Chagny touching the events of the night at Piros. I quote the questions and answers as given in the official report, pages 150 and following. Question. Did Mademoiselle Day not see you come down from your room by the curious road which you selected? Raoul. No, monsieur, no, although when walking behind her I took no pains to deaden the sound of my footsteps. In fact, I was anxious that she should turn round and see me. I realized that I had no excuse for following her, and that this way of spying on her was unworthy of me. But she seemed not to hear me, and acted exactly as though I were not there. She quietly left the quay, and then suddenly walked quickly up the road. The church clock had struck a quarter to twelve, and I thought that this must have been her hurry, for she began almost to run, and continued hastening until she came to the church. Question. Was the gate open? Raoul. Yes, monsieur, and this surprised me, but did not seem to surprise Mademoiselle Day. Question. Was there no one in the churchyard? Raoul. 
I did not see anyone, and if there had been I must have seen him. The moon was shining on the snow and made the night quite light. Question. Was it possible for anyone to hide behind the tombstones? Raoul. No, monsieur. They were quite small, poor tombstones, partly hidden under the snow, with their crosses just above the level of the ground. The only shadows were those of the crosses and ourselves. The church stood out quite brightly. I never saw so clear a night. It was very fine and very cold, and one could see everything. Question. Are you at all superstitious? Raoul. No, monsieur. I am a practicing Catholic. Question. In what condition of mind were you? Raoul. Very healthy and peaceful, I assure you. Mademoiselle Day's curious action in going out at that hour had worried me at first, but as soon as I saw her go to the churchyard I thought that she meant to fulfill some pious duty on her father's grave, and I considered this so natural that I recovered all my calmness. I was only surprised that she had not heard me walking behind her, for my footsteps were quite audible on the hard snow, but she must have taken up with her intentions, and I resolved not to disturb her. She knelt down by her father's grave, made the sign of the cross, and began to pray. At that moment it struck midnight. At the last stroke I saw Mademoiselle Day lift her eyes to the sky and stretch out her arms as though in ecstasy. I was wondering what the reason could be when I myself raised my head and everything within me seemed drawn toward the invisible which was playing the most perfect music. Christine and I knew that music. We had heard it as children but it had never been executed with such divine art, even by Monsieur Day. I remembered all that Christine had told me of the angel of music. The air was the resurrection of Lazarus, which old Monsieur Day used to play to us in his hours of melancholy and of faith. If Christine's angel had existed, he could not have played better that night on the late musician's violin. When the music stopped, I seemed to hear a noise from the skulls and the heap of bones, it was as though they were chuckling, and I could not help shuddering. Question. Did it not occur to you that the musician might be hiding behind that very heap of bones? Raoul. It was the one thought that did occur to me, monsieur, so much so that I omitted to follow Mademoiselle Day when she stood up and walked slowly to the gate. She was so much absorbed just then that I am not surprised that she did not see me. Question. Then what happened that you were found in the morning lying half-dead on the steps of the high altar? Raoul. First the skull rolled to my feet, then another, then another. It was as if I were the mark of that ghastly game of bowls, and I had an idea that false step must have destroyed the balance of the structure behind which our musician was concealed. This surmise seemed to be confirmed when I saw a shadow suddenly glide along the sacristy wall. I ran up. The shadow had already pushed open the door and entered the church, but I was quicker than the shadow and caught hold of a corner of its cloak. At that moment we were just in front of the high altar, and the moonbeams fell straight upon us through the stained-glass windows of the apse. As I did not let go of the cloak the shadow turned round, and I saw a terrible death's head which darted a look at me from a pair of scorching eyes. I felt as if I were face to face with Satan and in the presence of this unearthly apparition my heart gave way, my courage failed me, and I remember nothing more until I recovered consciousness at the setting sun. End of chapter 5
Chapter Six of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux, translated by Alexander Tizera Domatos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: A Visit to Box Five. We left Monsieur Firmin Richard and Monsieur Armand Moncharmin at the moment when they were deciding to look into that little matter of Box Five leaving behind them the broad staircase which leads from the lobby outside the manager's offices to the stage and its dependencies they crossed the stage went out by the subscriber's door and entered the house through the first little passage on the left then they made their way through the front rows of stalls and looked at box five on the grand tier they could not see it well because it was half in darkness and because great covers were flung over the red velvet of the ledges of all the boxes they were almost alone in the huge, gloomy house, and a great silence surrounded them. It was the time when most of the stagehands go out for a drink. The staff had left the boards for the moment, leaving a scene half set. A few rays of light, a wan, sinister light, that seemed to have been stolen from an expiring luminary, fell through some opening or other upon an old tower that raised its pasteboard battlements on the stage. Everything in this deceptive light adopted a fantastic shape. In the orchestra stalls the drugget covering them looked like an angry sea, whose glaucous waves had been suddenly rendered stationary by a secret order from the storm phantom, who, as everybody knows, is called Adamastor. Messieurs Moncharmin and Richard were the shipwrecked mariners amid this motionless turmoil of a calico sea. They made for the left boxes, ploughing their way like sailors who leave their ship and try to struggle to the shore. The eight great polished columns stood up in the dusk like so many huge piles supporting the threatening, crumbling, big-bellied cliffs whose layers were represented by the circular, parallel, waving lines of the balconies of the grand, first and second tiers of boxes. At the top, right on top of the cliff, lost in Monsieur Lenepvieux's copper ceiling, figures grinned and grimaced, laughed and jeered at Messieurs Richard and Moncharmin's distress, and yet these figures were usually very serious. Their names, Isis, Amphitrite, Hebe, Pandora, Psyche, Thetis, Pomona, Daphne, Clyte, Galatea, and Arthusia, yes, Arthusia herself and pandora whom we all know by her box looked down upon the two new managers of the opera who ended by clutching at some piece of wreckage and from there stared silently at box five on the grand tier i have said that they were distressed at least i presume so monsieur moncharmin in any case admits that he was impressed to quote his own words in his memoirs this moonshine about the opera ghost in which since we first took over the duties of messieurs poligny and debian we had been so nicely steeped moncharmin's style is not always irreproachable had no doubt ended by blinding my imaginative and also my visual faculties it may be that the exceptional surroundings in which we found ourselves in the midst of an incredible silence impressed us to an unusual extent it may be that we were the sport of a kind of hallucination brought about by the semi-darkness of the theatre and the partial gloom that filled box five at any rate i saw and richard also saw a shape in the box richard said nothing nor i either but we spontaneously seized each other's hand we stood like that for some minutes without moving with our eyes fixed on the same point but the figure had disappeared 
Then we went out and, in the lobby, communicated our impressions to each other and talked about the shape. The misfortune was that my shape was not in the least like Richard's. I had seen a thing like a death's head resting on the ledge of the box, whereas Richard saw the shape of an old woman who looked like Madame Giry. We soon discovered that we had really been the victims of an illusion, whereupon, without further delay and laughing like madmen, we ran to box five on the grand tier, went inside, and found no shape of any kind. Box five is just like all the other grand tier boxes. There is nothing to distinguish it from any of the others. Monsieur Moncharmin and Monsieur Richard, ostensibly highly amused and laughing at each other, moved the furniture of the box, lifted the cloths and the chairs, and particularly examined the armchair in which the man's voice used to sit. But they saw that it was a respectable armchair, with no magic about it. Altogether the box was the most ordinary box in the world, with its red hangings, its chairs, its carpet, and its ledge covered in red velvet. After feeling the carpet in the most serious manner possible, and discovering nothing more here or anywhere else, they went down to the corresponding box on the pit tier below. In box five on the pit tier, which is just inside the first exit from the stalls on the left, they found nothing worth mentioning either. "'Those people are all making fools of us,' Furman Richard ended by exclaiming. "'It will be Faust on Saturday.' Let us both see the performance from Box 5 on the Grand Tier. End of Chapter 6 Chapter 7 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Faust and What Followed on the Saturday morning on reaching their office, the joint managers found a letter from O.G. worded in these terms. My dear managers, so it is to be war between us. If you still care for peace, here is my ultimatum. It consists of the four following conditions. 1. You must give me back my private box, and I wish it to be at my free disposal from henceforward. 2. The part of Margarita shall be sung this evening by Christine Day. Never mind about Carlotta, she will be ill. 3. I absolutely insist upon the good and loyal services of Madame Jury, my box-keeper, whom you will reinstate in her functions forthwith. 4. Let me know by a letter handed to Madame Jury, who will see that it reaches me, that you accept as your predecessors did, the conditions in my memorandum-book relating to my monthly allowance. I will inform you later how you are to pay it to me. If you refuse, you will give Faust to-night in a house with a curse upon it. Take my advice, and be warned in time. Oh, gee! Look here! I'm getting sick of him! Sick of him! shouted Richard, bringing his fist down upon his office table. Just then Mercier, the acting manager, entered. "'Zachanel would like to see one of you gentlemen,' he said. "'He says that his business is urgent, and he seems quite upset.' "'Who's Lachanel?' asked Richard. "'He's your stud-groom.' "'What do you mean, my stud-groom?' "'Yes, sir,' explained Mercier. "'There are several grooms at the opera, and Monsieur Lachanel is at the head of them.' "'And what does this groom do?' "'He has the chief management of the stable.' "'What stable? 
"'Why, yours, sir, the stable of the opera. "'Is there a stable at the opera? "'Upon my word I didn't know. "'Where is it?' "'In the cellars on the rotunda side. "'It's a very important department. "'We have twelve horses.' Twelve horses? And what for in heaven's name? Why, we want trained horses for the processions in the Juive, the Profeta, and so on, horses used to the boards. It is the groom's business to teach them. Monsieur Lacanel is very clever at it. He used to manage Franconi's stables. Very well, but what does he want? I don't know. I never saw him in such a state. He can come in. Monsieur Lacanel came in, carrying a riding-whip, with which he struck his right boot in an irritable manner. "'Good morning, Monsieur Lacanel,' said Richard, somewhat impressed. "'To what do we owe the honour of your visit?' "'Mr. Manager, I have come to ask you to get rid of the whole stable.' "'What? You want to get rid of our horses?' "'I'm not talking of the horses, but of the stablemen.' "'How many stablemen have you, Monsieur Lacanel?' Six stablemen. That's at least two too many. These are places, Mercier interposed, created and forced upon us by the Undersecretary for Fine Arts. They are filled by protégés of the government, and if I may venture to— I don't care a hang for the government, roared Richard. We don't need more than four stablemen for twelve horses. Eleven, said the head riding-master, correcting him. Twelve, repeated Richard. Eleven, repeated Lacanel. "'Oh, the acting manager told me that you had twelve horses.' "'I did have twelve, but I only have eleven since Caesar was stolen,' and Monsieur Lacanel gave himself a great smack on the boot with his whip. "'Has Caesar been stolen?' cried the acting manager. "'Caesar, the white horse in the Profeta?' "'There are not two Caesars,' said the stud-groom dryly. I was ten years at Franconi's, and I have seen plenty of horses in my time. Well, there are not two Caesars, and he's been stolen. How? I don't know. Nobody knows. That's why I have come to ask you to sack the whole stable. What do your stablemen say? All sorts of nonsense. Some of them accuse the supers. Others pretend that it's the acting manager's doorkeeper. My doorkeeper? "'I'll answer for him, as I would for myself,' protested Mercier. "'But after all, Monsieur Lacanel,' cried Richard, "'you must have some idea.' "'Yes, I have,' Monsieur Lacanel declared. "'I have an idea, and I'll tell you what it is. "'There's no doubt about it in my mind.' He walked up to the two managers and whispered, "'It's the ghost who did the trick.' Richard gave a jump. "'What? You too? You too?' "'How do you mean, I, too? Isn't it natural after what I saw?' "'What did you see?' "'I saw, as clearly as I now see you, a black shadow riding a white horse that was as like Caesar as two peas.' "'And did you run after them?' "'I did, and I shouted, but they were too fast for me and disappeared in the darkness of the underground gallery.' Monsieur Richard rose. "'That will do, Monsieur Lacanel.' You can go. We will lodge a complaint against the ghost. And sack my stable? Oh, of course. Good morning. Monsieur Lacanel bowed and withdrew. Richard foamed at the mouth. Settle that idiot's account at once, please. He is a friend of the government representatives, Mercier ventured to say. 
and he takes his vermouth at Tortoni's with Lagraine, Chole, and Pertusset, the lion-hunter, added Moncharmin. We shall have the whole press against us. He'll tell the story of the ghost, and everybody will be laughing at our expense. We may as well be dead as ridiculous. All right, say no more about it. At that moment the door opened. It must have been deserted by its usual Sibaris, for Madame Jury entered without ceremony, holding a letter in her hand, and said hurriedly, "'I beg your pardon. Excuse me, gentlemen, but I had a letter this morning from the opera ghost. He told me to come to you, that you had something to—' She did not complete the sentence. She saw from in Richard's face, and it was a terrible sight. He seemed ready to burst. He said nothing. He could not speak but suddenly he acted. First his left arm seized upon the quaint person of Madame Jury and made her describe so unexpected a semicircle that she uttered a despairing cry. Next his right foot imprinted its soul upon the black taffeta of a skirt which certainly had never before undergone a similar outrage in a similar place. The thing happened so quickly that Madame Jury, when in the passage, was still quite bewildered and seemed not to understand. But suddenly she understood, and the opera rang with her indignant yells, her violent protests and threats. About the same time Carlotta, who had a small house of her own in the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Nore, rang for her maid, who brought her letters to her bed. Among them was an anonymous missive, written in red ink, in a hesitating, clumsy hand, which ran, if you appear to-night you must be prepared for a great misfortune at the moment when you open your mouth to sing, a misfortune worse than death. The letter took away Carlotta's appetite for breakfast. She pushed back her chocolate, sat up in bed, and thought hard. It was not the first letter of the kind which she had received, but she never had one couched in such threatening terms. She thought herself at that time the victim of a thousand jealous attempts, and went about saying that she had a secret enemy who had sworn to ruin her. She pretended that a wicked plot was being hatched against her, a cabal which would come to a head one of those days, but she added that she was not the woman to be intimidated. The truth is that if there was a cabal it was led by Carlotta herself against poor Christine, who had no suspicion of it. Carlotta had never forgiven Christine for the triumph which she had achieved when taking her place at a moment's notice. When Carlotta heard of the astounding reception bestowed upon her understudy, she was at once cured of an incipient attack of bronchitis and a bad fit of sulking against the management, and lost the slightest inclination to shirk her duties. From that time she worked with all her might to smother her rival, enlisting the services of influential friends to persuade the managers not to give Christine an opportunity for a fresh triumph. Certain newspapers, which had begun to extol the talent of Christine, now interested themselves only in the fame of Carlotta. Lastly, in the theatre itself, the celebrated but heartless and soulless Diva made the most scandalous remarks about Christine, and tried to cause her endless minor unpleasantnesses. When Carlotta had finished thinking over the threat contained in the strange letter, she got up. "'We shall see,' she said, adding a few oaths in her native Spanish with a very determined air. The first thing she saw when looking out of her window was a hearse. She was very superstitious, 
and the hearse and the letter convinced her that she was running the most serious dangers that evening. She collected all her supporters, told them that she was threatened at that evening's performance with a plot organized by Christine Day, and declared that they must play a trick upon that chit by filling the house with her, Carlotta's, admirers. She had no lack of them, had she? She relied upon them to hold themselves, prepared for any eventuality, and to silence the adversaries, if, as she feared, they created a disturbance. Monsieur Richard's private secretary called to ask after the diva's health, and returned with the assurance that she was perfectly well, and that, were she dying, she would sing the part of Margarita that evening. The secretary urged her, in his chief's name, to commit no imprudence, to stay at home all day, and to be careful of drafts, and Carlotta could not help, after he had gone, comparing this unusual and unexpected advice with the threats contained in the letter. It was five o'clock when the post brought a second anonymous letter in the same hand as the first. It was short, and said simply, "'You have a bad cold.' If you are wise, you will see that it is madness to try to sing tonight. Carlotta sneered, shrugged her handsome shoulders, and sang two or three notes to reassure herself. Her friends were faithful to their promise. They were all at the opera that night, but looked round in vain for the fierce conspirators whom they were instructed to suppress. The only unusual thing was the presence of Monsieur Richard and Monsieur Moncharmin in Box Five. Carlotta's friends thought that perhaps the managers had wind on their side of the proposed disturbance, and that they had determined to be in the house so as to stop it then and there. But this was unjustifiable supposition, as the reader knows. Monsieur Richard and Monsieur Moncharmin were thinking of nothing but their ghost. Bain, in vain do I call, through my vigil weary, on creation and its lord, Never reply will break the silence dreary. No sign, no single word. The famous baritone, Carolus Fonta, had hardly finished Dr. Faust's first appeal to the powers of darkness when Monsieur Furman Richard, who was sitting in the ghost's own chair, the front chair on the right, leaned over to his partner and asked him chafingly, Well, has the ghost whispered a word in your ear yet? Wait, don't be in such a hurry replied Monsieur Armand Moncharmin, in the same gay tone. "'The performance has only begun, and you know that the ghost does not usually come until the middle of the first act.' The first act passed without incident, which did not surprise Carlotta's friends, because Margarita does not sing in this act. As for the managers, they looked at each other when the curtain fell. "'That's one,' said Moncharmin. "'Yes, the ghost is late,' said Fairman Richard. "'It's not a bad house,' said Moncharmin, "'for a house with a curse on it.' Monsieur Richard smiled and pointed to a fat, rather vulgar woman, dressed in black, sitting in a stall in the middle of the auditorium, with a man in a broadcloth frock-coat on either side of her. "'Who on earth are those?' asked Moncharmin. "'Those, my dear fellow, are my concierge, her husband and her brother.' "'Did you give them their tickets?' "'I did.' My concierge had never been to the opera. This is the first time, and as she is now going to come every night, I wanted her to have a good seat before spending her time showing other people to theirs. 
Moncharmin asked what he meant, and Richard answered that he had persuaded his concierge, in whom he had the greatest confidence, to come and take Madame Jury's place. Yes, he would like to see if, with that woman instead of the old lunatic, Box Five would continue to astonish the natives. "'By the way,' said Moncharmin, "'you know that Mother Jury is going to lodge a complaint against you.' "'With whom? The ghost?' "'The ghost!' Moncharmin had almost forgotten him. However, that mysterious person did nothing to bring himself to the memory of the managers, and they were just saying so to each other for the second time when the door of the box suddenly opened to admit the startled stage manager. "'What's the matter?' they both asked, amazed at seeing him there at such a time. "'It seems there's a plot got up by Christine Day's friends against Carlotta. Carlotta's furious!' "'What on earth?' said Richard, knitting his brows. But the curtain rose on the kermesse scene, and Richard made a sign to the stage manager to go away. When the two were alone again, Moncharmin leaned over to Richard. "'Then Day has friends?' he asked. "'Yes, she has.' "'Whom?' Richard glanced across at a box on the grand tier containing no one but two men. "'The Comte de Chagny?' "'Yes, he spoke to me in her favor with such warmth "'that if I had not known him to be Sorelli's friend—' "'Really? Really?' said Moncharmin. "'And who is that pale young man beside him?' "'That's his brother, the Viscount. "'He ought to be in his bed. He looks ill.' "'The stage rang with gay song. "'Red or white liquor, coarse or fine, "'what can it matter, so we have wine?' Students, citizens, soldiers, girls, and matrons whirled light-heartedly before the inn with the figure of Bacchus for a sign. Siebel made her entrance. Christine Day looked charming in her boy's clothes, and Carlotta's partisans expected to hear her greeted with an ovation which would have enlightened them as to the intentions of her friends. But nothing happened. On the other hand, when Marguerite crossed the stage, and sang the only two lines allotted her in this second act, No, my lord, not a lady am I, nor yet a beauty, and do not need an arm to help me on my way. Carlotta was received with enthusiastic applause. It was so unexpected and so uncalled for that those who knew nothing about the rumors looked at one another and asked what was happening and this act also was finished without incident. Then everybody said, Of course it will be during the next act. Some, who seemed to be better informed than the rest, declared that the row would begin with the ballad of the King of Thule, and rushed to the subscriber's entrance to warn Carlotta. The managers left the box during the umt act to find out more about the cabal of which the stage manager had spoken but they soon returned to their seats, shrugging their shoulders and treating the whole affair as silly. The first thing they saw on entering the box was a box of English sweets on the little shelf of the ledge. Who had put it there? They asked the box-keepers, but none of them knew. Then they went back to the shelf, and next to the box of sweets found an opera-glass. They looked at each other. They had no inclination to laugh. All that Madame Jury had told them returned to their memory. And then, and then, they seemed to feel a curious sort of draft around them. They sat down in silence. The scene represented Margarita's garden. 
gentle flowers in the dew be message from me as she sang these first two lines with her bunch of roses and lilacs in her hand christine raising her head saw the vicomte de chagny in his box and from that moment her voice seemed less sure less crystal clear than usual something seemed to deaden and dull her singing what a queer girl she is said one of carlotta's friends in the stalls almost aloud the other day she was divine and to-night she's simply bleating she has no experience no training gentle flowers lie there and tell her from me the viscount put his head under his hands and wept the count behind him viciously gnawed his moustache shrugged his shoulders and frowned for him usually so cold and correct to betray his inner feelings like that by outward signs the count must be very angry he was he had seen his brother return from a rapid and mysterious journey in an alarming state of health the explanation that followed was unsatisfactory and the count asked christine day for an appointment she had the audacity to reply that she could not see either him or his brother would she but deign to hear me and with one smile to cheer me the little baggage growled the count and he wondered what she wanted what she was hoping for she was a virtuous girl she was said to have no friend no protector of any sort that angel from the north must be very artful raoul behind the curtain of his hands that veiled his boyish tears thought only of the letter which he received on his return to paris where christine fleeing from peros like a thief in the night had arrived before him my dear little playfellow you must have the courage not to see me again not to speak of me again if you love me just a little do this for me for me who will never forget you my dear raoul my life depends upon it your life depends upon it your little christine thunders of applause carlotta made her entrance i wish i could but know who was he that addressed me if he was noble or at least what his name is when margarita had finished singing the ballad of the king of tuli she was loudly cheered and again when she came to the end of the jewel song ah the joy of past compare these jewels bright to wear thenceforth certain of herself certain of her friends in the house certain of her voice and her success fearing nothing carlotta flung herself into her part without restraint of modesty she was no longer margarita she was carmen she was applauded all the more and her debut with faust seemed about to bring her a new success when suddenly a terrible thing happened faust had knelt on one knee let me gaze on the form below me while from yonder ether blue look how the star of eve bright and tender lingers over me to love thy beauty too and margarita replied oh how strange like a spell does the evening bind me and a deep languid charm i feel without alarm with its melody enwind me and all my heart subdue at that moment at that identical moment the terrible thing happened carlotta croaked like a toad quack 
there was consternation on Carlotta's face, and consternation on the faces of all the audience. The two managers in their box could not suppress an exclamation of horror. Everyone felt that the thing was not natural, that there was witchcraft behind it. That toad smelt of brimstone. Poor, wretched, despairing, crushed Carlotta. The uproar in the house was indescribable. If the thing had happened to anyone but Carlotta, she would have been hooted, but everybody knew how perfect an instrument her voice was, and there was no display of anger, but only of horror and dismay, the sort of dismay which men would have felt if they had witnessed the catastrophe that broke the arms of the Venus de Milo, and even then they would have seen and understood. But here that toad was incomprehensible, so much so that after some seconds spent in asking herself if she had really heard that note, that sound, that infernal noise issue from her throat, she tried to persuade herself that it was not so, that she was the victim of an illusion, an illusion of the ear, and not of an act of treachery on the part of her voice. Meanwhile, in Box 5, Moncharmin and Richard had turned very pale. This extraordinary and inexplicable incident filled them with a dread which was the more mysterious inasmuch as for some little while they had fallen within the direct influence of the ghost. They had felt his breath. Moncharmin's hair stood on end. Richard wiped the perspiration from his forehead. Yes, the ghost was there, around them, behind them, beside them. They felt his presence without seeing him. They heard his breath, close, close, close to them. They were sure that there were three people in the box. They trembled. They thought of running away. They dared not. They dared not make a movement or exchange a word that would have told the ghost that they knew that he was there. What was going to happen? This happened. Quack! Their joint exclamation of horror was heard all over the house. They felt that they were smarting under the ghost's attacks. Leaning over the ledge of their box, they stared at Carlotta as though they did not recognize her. That infernal girl must have given the signal for some catastrophe. Ah, they were waiting for the catastrophe. The ghost had told them it would come. The house had a curse upon it. The two managers gasped and panted under the weight of the catastrophe. Richard's stifled voice was heard calling to Carlotta. Well, go on! No, Carlotta did not go on. Bravely, heroically, she started afresh on the fatal line at the end of which the toad had appeared. An awful silence succeeded the uproar. Carlotta's voice alone once more filled the resounding house. I feel without alarm. The audience also felt, but not without alarm. I feel without alarm. I feel without alarm. Quack! With its melody unwind me. Quack! and all my heart's a-quack. The toad also had started afresh. The house broke into a wild tumult. The two managers collapsed in their chairs and dared not even turn around. They had not the strength. The ghost was chuckling behind their backs, and at last they distinctly heard his voice in their right ears, the impossible voice, the mouthless voice, saying, She is singing tonight to bring the chandelier down. With one accord they raised their eyes to the ceiling and uttered a terrible cry. The chandelier, the immense mass of the chandelier, was slipping down, coming toward them at the call of that fiendish voice. Released from its hook, it plunged from the ceiling and came smashing into the middle of the stalls amid a thousand shouts of terror. 
A wild rush for the doors followed. The papers of the day state that there were numbers wounded and one killed. The chandelier had crashed down upon the head of the wretched woman who had come to the opera for the first time in her life, the one whom Monsieur Richard had appointed to succeed Madame Jury, the ghost boxkeeper, in her functions. She died on the spot, and the next morning a newspaper appeared with this heading, Two Hundred Kilos on the Head of a Concierge. That was her sole epitaph. End of chapter 7「The Phantom of the Opera » by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: The Mysterious Brethem That tragic evening was bad for everybody. Carlotta fell ill. As for Christine Day, she disappeared after the performance. A fortnight elapsed during which she was seen neither at the opera nor outside. Raoul, of course, was the first to be astonished at the prima donna's absence. He wrote to her at Madame Valerius's flat and received no reply. His grief increased, and he ended by being seriously alarmed at never seeing her name on the program. Faust was played without her. One afternoon he went to the manager's office to ask the reason of Christine's disappearance. He found them both looking extremely worried. Their own friends did not recognize them. They had lost all their gaiety and spirits. They were seen crossing the stage with hanging heads, careworn brows, pale cheeks, as though pursued by some abominable thought or a prey to some persistent sport of fate. The fall of the chandelier had involved them in no little responsibility, but it was difficult to make them speak about it. The inquest had ended in a verdict of accidental death, caused by the wear and tear of the chains by which the chandelier was hung from the ceiling, but it was the duty of both the old and the new managers to have discovered this wear and tear, and to have remedied it in time. And I feel bound to say that Messieurs Richard and Moncharmin at this time appeared so changed, so absent-minded, so mysterious, so incomprehensible, that many of the subscribers thought that some event, even more horrible than the fall of the chandelier, must have affected their state of mind. In their daily intercourse they showed themselves very impatient, except with Madame Giry, who had been reinstated in her functions and their reception of the vicomte de chagny when he came to ask about christine was anything but cordial they merely told him that she was taking a holiday he asked how long the holiday was for and they replied curtly that it was for an unlimited period as mademoiselle day had requested leave of absence for reasons of health then she is ill he cried what is the matter with her we don't know didn't you send the doctor of the opera to see her no, she did not ask for him, and, as we trust her, we took her word. Raoul left the building a prey to the gloomiest thoughts. He resolved, come what might, to go and inquire of Mama Valerius. He remembered the strong phrases in Christine's letter, forbidding him to make any attempt to see her. But what he had seen at Peros, what he had heard behind the dressing-room door, his conversation with Christine at the edge of the moor made him suspect some machination, which, devilish though it might be, was none the less human. The girl's highly strung imagination, 
her affectionate and credulous mind, the primitive education which had surrounded her childhood with a circle of legends, the constant brooding over her dead father, and, above all, the state of sublime ecstasy into which music threw her from the moment that this art was made manifest to her in certain exceptional conditions, as in the churchyard at Peros, all this seemed to him to constitute a moral ground only too favourable for the malevolent designs of some mysterious and unscrupulous person. Of whom was Christine Day the victim? This was the very reasonable question which Raoul put to himself as he hurried off to Mama Valerius. He trembled as he rang at a little flat in the Rue Notre-Dame des Victoires. The door was opened by the maid whom he had seen coming out of Christine's dressing-room one evening. He asked if he could speak to Madame Valerius. He was told that she was ill, in bed, and was not receiving visitors. "'Take in my card, please,' he said. The maid soon returned and showed him into a small and scantily furnished drawing-room in which portraits of Professor Valerius and Old Day hung on opposite walls. "'Madame begs Monsieur le Vicomte to excuse her,' said the servant. She can only see him in her bedroom, because she can no longer stand on her poor legs. Five minutes later Raoul was ushered into an ill-lit room, where he at once recognized the good, kind face of Christine's benefactress in the semi-darkness of an alcove. Mama Valerius's hair was now quite white, but her eyes had grown no older. Never, on the contrary, had their expression been so bright, so pure, so childlike. "'Monsieur de Chagny,' she cried gaily, putting out both her hands to her visitor. "'Ah, oh, it's heaven that sends you here. We can talk of her.' This last sentence sounded very gloomily in the young man's ears. He at once asked, "'Madame, where is Christine?' And the old lady replied calmly, "'She is with her good genius.' "'What good genius?' exclaimed poor Raoul. "'Why, the angel of music!' The viscount dropped into a chair. Really, Christine was with the angel of music, and there lay Mama Valerius in bed, smiling to him and putting her finger to her lips to warn him to be silent, and she added, You must not tell anybody. You can rely on me, said Raoul. He hardly knew what he was saying, for his ideas about Christine, already greatly confused, were becoming more and more entangled, and it seemed as if everything was beginning to turn around him around the room, around that extraordinary good lady with the white hair and forget-me-not eyes. "'I know, I know I can,' she said with a happy laugh. "'But why don't you come near me, as you used to do when you were a little boy? Give me your hands, as when you brought me the story of little Lotta, which Daddy Day had told you. I am very fond of you, Monsieur Riol, you know, and so is Christine, too.' "'She is fond of me,' sighed the young man. He found a difficulty in collecting his thoughts and bringing them to bear on Mama Valerius's good genius, on the angel of music of whom Christine had spoken to him so strangely, on the death's head which he had seen in a sort of nightmare on the high altar at Peros, and also on the opera ghost, whose fame had come to his ears one evening when he was standing behind the scenes, within hearing of a group of scene-shifters, who were repeating the ghastly description which the hanged man, Joseph Bouquet, had given of the ghost before his mysterious death. He asked in a low voice, "'What makes you think that Christine is fond of me, madame?' she used to speak of you every day really and what did she tell you she told me that you had made her a proposal and the good old lady began laughing wholeheartedly 
Raoul sprang from his chair, flushing to the temple, suffering agonies. "'What's this? Where are you going? Sit down again at once, will you? Do you think I will let you go like that? If you are angry with me for laughing, I beg your pardon. After all, what has happened isn't your fault. Didn't you know? Did you think that Christine was free?' "'Is Christine engaged to be married?' the wretched Raoul asked in a choking voice. "'Why, no. You know as well as I do that Christine couldn't marry even if she wanted to. But I don't know anything about it. And why can't Christine marry?' "'Because of the angel of music, of course. I don't follow.' "'Yes, he forbids her to.' "'He forbids her? The angel of music forbids her to marry?' Oh, he forbids her without forbidding her. It's like this. He tells her that if she got married she would never hear him again, that's all, and that he would go away forever. So you understand she can't let the angel of music go. It's quite natural. Yes, yes, echoed Raoul submissively. It's quite natural. Besides, I thought Christine had told you all that when she met you at Peros, where she went with her good genius. Oh, she went to Peros with her good genius, did she? That is to say, he arranged to meet her down there in Peros churchyard at Day's grave. He promised to play her the resurrection of Lazarus on her father's violin. Raoul de Chagny rose and, with a very authoritative air, pronounced these peremptory words. Madame, you will have the goodness to tell me where that genius lives. The old lady did not seem surprised at this indiscreet command. She raised her eyes and said, In heaven! Such simplicity baffled him. He did not know what to say in the presence of this candid and perfect faith in a genius who came down nightly from heaven to haunt the dressing-rooms at the opera. He now realized the possible state of mind of a girl brought up between a superstitious fiddler and a visionary old lady, and he shuddered when he thought of the consequences of it all. "'Is Christine still a good girl?' he asked suddenly, in spite of himself. "'I swear it, as I hope to be saved!' exclaimed the old woman, who this time seemed to be incensed. "'And if you doubt it, sir, I don't know what you are here for.' Raoul tore at his gloves. How long has she known this genius? About three months. Yes, it's quite three months since he began to give her lessons. The Viscount threw up his arms with a gesture of despair. The genius gives her lessons? And where, pray? Now that she has gone away with him, I can't say. But up to a fortnight ago it was in Christine's dressing-room. It would be impossible in this little flat. The whole house would hear them whereas at the opera at eight o'clock in the morning there is no one about. Do you see? Yes, I see, cried the Viscount, and he hurriedly took leave of Madame Valerius, who asked herself if the young nobleman was not a little off his head. He walked home to his brother's house in a pitiful state. He could have struck himself, banged his head against the walls, to think that he had believed in her innocence, in her purity. The angel of music, he knew him now, he saw him. It was beyond a doubt some unspeakable tenor, a good-looking jackanops, who mouthed and simpered as he sang. He thought himself as absurd and as wretched as he could be. Oh, what a miserable, little, insignificant, silly young man was Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny, thought Raoul furiously. And she, what a bold and damnable sly creature! 
His brother was waiting for him, and Raoul fell into his arms like a child. The Count consoled him, without asking for explanations, and Raoul would certainly have long hesitated before telling him the story of the Angel of Music. His brother suggested taking him out to dinner. Overcome as he was with despair, Raoul would probably have refused any invitation that evening if the Count had not, as an inducement, told him that the lady of his thoughts had been seen the night before in company of the other sex in the Bois. At first the Viscount refused to believe, but he received such exact details that he ceased protesting. She had been seen, it appeared, driving in a brougham with the window down. She seemed to be slowly taking in the icy night air. There was a glorious moon shining. She was recognized beyond a doubt. As for her companion, only his shadowy outline was distinguished leaning back in the dark. The carriage was going at a walking pace in a lonely drive behind the grandstand at Longchamp. Raoul, dressed in frantic haste, prepared to forget his distress by flinging himself, as people say, into the vortex of pleasure. Alas, he was a very sorry guest, and leaving his brother early found himself, by ten o'clock in the evening, in a cab behind the Longchamp race-course. It was bitterly cold, the road seemed deserted, and very bright under the moonlight. He told the driver to wait for him patiently at the corner of a near turning, and, hiding himself as well as he could, stood stamping his feet to keep warm. He had been indulging in this healthy exercise for half an hour or so, when a carriage turned the corner of the road and came quietly in his direction at a walking pace. As it approached he saw that a woman was leaning her head from the window, and suddenly the moon shed a pale gleam over her features. "'Christine!' The sacred name of his love had sprung from his heart and his lips. He could not keep it back. He would have given anything to withdraw it, for that name, proclaimed in the stillness of the night, had acted as though it were the preconcerted signal for a furious rush on the part of the whole turnout, which dashed past him before he could put into execution his plan of leaping at the horses' heads. The carriage window had been closed, and the girl's face had disappeared and the brougham behind which he was now running was no more than a black spot on the white road. He called out again, Christine! No reply, and he stopped in the midst of the silence. With a lackluster eye he stared down that cold, desolate road and into the pale, dead night. Nothing was colder than his heart, nothing half so dead. He had loved an angel, and now he despised a woman. Raoul, how that little fairy of the north has trifled with you! Was it really, was it really necessary to have so fresh and young a face, a forehead so shy and always ready to cover itself with the pink blush of modesty in order to pass in the lonely night in a carriage and pair, accompanied by a mysterious lover? Surely there should be some limit to hypocrisy and lying. She had passed without answering his cry, and he was thinking of dying and he was twenty years old. His valet found him in the morning, sitting on his bed. He had not undressed, and the servant feared, at the sight of his face, that some disaster had occurred. Raoul snatched his letters from the man's hands. He had recognized Christine's paper and handwriting. She said, "'Dear, go to the masked ball at the opera on the night after tomorrow. At twelve o'clock be in the little room behind the chimney-place of the big crush-room. Stand near the door that leads to the rotunda. Don't mention this appointment to anyone on earth. Wear a white domino and be carefully masked. 
as you love me do not let yourself be recognized christine end of chapter 8Chapter Nine of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Larue, translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine at the Masked Ball. The envelope was covered with mud and unstamped. It bore the words to be handed to Monsieur le Vicomte Raoul de Chagny with the address in pencil. It must have been flung out in the hope that a passer-by would pick up the note and deliver it, which was what happened. The note had been picked up on the pavement of the Place de l'Opera. Raoul read it over again with fevered eyes. No more was needed to revive his hope. The somber picture which he had for a moment imagined of a Christine forgetting her duty to herself made way for his original conception of an unfortunate, innocent child, the victim of imprudence and exaggerated sensibility. To what extent, at this time, was she really a victim? Whose prisoner was she? Into what whirlpool had she been dragged? He asked himself these questions with a cruel anguish but even this pain seemed endurable beside the frenzy into which he was thrown at the thought of a lying and deceitful christine what had happened what influence had she undergone what monster had carried her off and by what means by what means indeed but that of music he knew christine's story after her father's death she acquired a distaste of everything in life including her art she went through the conservatoire like a poor soulless singing-machine, and suddenly she awoke as though through the intervention of a god. The angel of music appeared upon the scene. She sang Margarita in Faust and triumphed. The angel of music! For three months the angel of music had been giving Christine lessons. Ah, he was a punctual singing-master, and now he was taking her for drives in the bois. Raoul's fingers clutched at his flesh above his jealous heart. In his inexperience he now asked himself with terror what game the girl was playing. Up to what point could an opera singer make a fool of a good-natured young man, quite new to love? Oh, misery! Thus did Raoul's thoughts fly from one extreme to the other. He no longer knew whether to pity Christine or to curse her, and he pitied and cursed her turn and turn about. At all events, he bought a white domino. The hour of the appointment came at last. With his face in a mask, trimmed with long, thick lace, looking like a pirot in his white wrap, the Viscount thought himself very ridiculous. Men of the world do not go to the opera ball in fancy dress. It was absurd. One thought, however, consoled the Viscount. He would certainly never be recognized. This ball was an exceptional affair, given some time before Chauvetida, in honor of the anniversary of the birth of a famous draftsman, and it was expected to be much gayer, noisier, more bohemian than the ordinary masked ball. Numbers of artists had arranged to go, accompanied by a whole cohort of models and pupils, who by midnight began to create a tremendous din. Raoul climbed the grand staircase at five minutes to twelve, did not linger to look at the motley dresses displayed all the way up the marble steps, one of the richest settings in the world, allowed no facetious mask to draw him into a war of wits, replied to no jests, and shook off the bold familiarity of a number of couples who had already become a trifle too gay. 
crossing the big crush room and escaping from a mad whirl of dancers in which he was caught for a moment he at last entered the room mentioned in christine's letter he found it crammed for this small space was the point where all those who were going to supper in the rotunda crossed those who were returning from taking a glass of champagne the fun here waxed fast and furious raoul leaned against a doorpost and waited he did not wait long a black domino passed and gave a quick squeeze to the tips of his fingers he understood that it was she and followed her is that you christine he asked between his teeth the black domino turned round promptly and raised her finger to her lips no doubt to warn him not to mention her name again raoul continued to follow her in silence he was afraid of losing her after meeting her again in such strange circumstances his grudge against her was gone he no longer doubted that she had nothing to reproach herself with however peculiar and inexplicable her conduct might seem he was ready to make any display of clemency forgiveness or cowardice he was in love and no doubt he would soon receive a very natural explanation of her curious absence the black domino turned back from time to time to see if the white domino was still following as raoul once more passed through the great crush room this time in the wake of his guide he could not help noticing a group crowding round a person whose disguise eccentric air and gruesome appearance were causing a sensation it was a man dressed all in scarlet with a huge hat and feathers on the top of a wonderful death's head from his shoulders hung an immense red velvet cloak which trailed along the floor like a king's train and on this cloak was embroidered in gold letters which everyone read and repeated aloud don't touch me i am red death stalking abroad then one greatly daring did try to touch him but a skeleton hand shot out of a crimson sleeve and violently seized the rash one's wrist and he feeling the clutch of the knuckle bones the furious grasp of death uttered a cry of pain and terror when red death released him at last he ran away like a very madman pursued by the jeers of the bystanders it was at this moment that raoul passed in front of the funereal masquerader who had just happened to turn in his direction and he nearly exclaimed the death's head of perros garec he had recognized him he wanted to dart forward forgetting christine but the black domino who also seemed a prey to some strange excitement caught him by the arm and dragged him from the crush room far from the mad crowd through which red death was stalking the black domino kept on turning back and apparently on two occasions saw something that startled her for she hurried her pace and raoul's as though they were being pursued they went up two floors here the stairs and corridors were almost deserted the black domino opened the door of a private box and beckoned to the white domino to follow her then christine whom he recognized by the sound of her voice closed the door behind them and warned him in a whisper to remain at the back of the box and on no account to show himself raoul took off his mask christine kept hers on and when raoul was about to ask her to remove it he was surprised to see her put her ear to the partition and listen eagerly for a sound outside then she opened the door ajar looked out into the corridor and in a low voice said he must have gone higher suddenly she exclaimed he is coming down again she tried to close the door but raoul prevented her for he had seen on the top step of the staircase that led to the floor above a red foot followed by another and slowly majestically the whole scarlet dress of red death met his eyes 
and he once more saw the death's head of Peros Garak. "'It's he!' he exclaimed. "'This time he shall not escape me!' But Christine had slammed the door at the moment when Raoul was on the point of rushing out. He tried to push her aside. "'Whom do you mean by he?' she asked in a changed voice. "'Who shall not escape you?' Raoul tried to overcome the girl's resistance by force, but she repelled him with a strength which he would not have suspected in her. He understood, or thought he understood, and at once lost his temper. "'Who?' he repeated angrily. "'Why, he, the man who hides behind that hideous mask of death, the evil genius of the churchyard at Peros, red death. In a word, madam, your friend, your angel of music.' but I shall snatch off his mask, as I shall snatch off my own, and this time we shall look each other in the face, he and I, with no veil and no lies between us, and I shall know whom you love and who loves you. He burst into a mad laugh while Christine gave a disconsolate moan behind her velvet mask. With a tragic gesture she flung out her two arms, which fixed a barrier of white flesh against the door. "'In the name of our love, Raoul!' you shall not pass he stopped what had she said in the name of their love never before had she confessed that she loved him and yet she had had opportunities enough pooh her only object was to gain a few seconds she wished to give the red death time to escape and in accents of childish hatred he said you lie madam for you do not love me and you have never loved me what a poor fellow I must be to let you mock and flout me as you have done. Why did you give me every reason for hope, at Peros, for honest hope, madam, for I am an honest man, and I believed you to be an honest woman, when your only intention was to deceive me? Alas, you have deceived us all. You have taken a shameful advantage of the candid affection of your benefactress herself, who continues to believe in your sincerity, while you go about the opera ball with red death i despise you and he burst into tears she allowed him to insult her she thought of but one thing to keep him from leaving the box you will beg my pardon one day for all those ugly words raoul and when you do i shall forgive you he shook his head no no you have driven me mad when i think that i had only one object in life to give my name to an opera wench raoul how can you i shall die of shame no dear live said christine's grave and changed voice and good-bye good-bye raoul the boy stepped forward staggering as he went he risked one more sarcasm oh you must let me come and applaud you from time to time i shall never sing again raoul really he replied still more satirically so he is taking you off the stage I congratulate you, but we shall meet in the Bois one of these evenings. Not in the Bois, nor anywhere, Raoul. You shall not see me again. May one ask, at least, to what darkness you are returning? For what hell are you leaving, mysterious lady, or for what paradise? I came to tell you, dear, but I can't tell you now. You would not believe me. You have lost faith in me, Raoul. It is finished." She spoke in such a despairing voice that the lad began to feel remorse for his cruelty. "'But look here,' he cried. "'Can't you tell me what all this means? You are free. There is no one to interfere with you. You go about Paris. You put on a domino to come to the ball. Why do you not go home? What have you been doing this past fortnight? 
What is this tale about the angel of music which you have been telling Mama Valerius? Someone may have taken you in, played upon your innocence. I was a witness of it myself at Paros. But you know what to believe now. You seem to me quite sensible, Christine. You know what you are doing. And meanwhile Mama Valerius lies waiting for you at home and appealing to your good genius. Explain yourself, Christine, I beg of you. Anyone might have been deceived as I was. What is this farce? Christine simply took off her mask and said, Dear, it is a tragedy. Raoul now saw her face and could not restrain an exclamation of surprise and terror. The fresh complexion of former days was gone. A mortal pallor covered those features which he had known so charming and so gentle, and sorrow had furrowed them with pitiless lines and traced dark and unspeakably sad shadows under her eyes. "'My dearest, my dearest,' he moaned, holding out his arms, "'you promised to forgive me. Perhaps, some day perhaps,' she said, resuming her mask, and she went away, forbidding him with a gesture to follow her. He tried to disobey her, but she turned round and repeated her gesture of farewell with such authority that he dared not move a step. He watched her till she was out of sight. Then he also went down among the crowd, hardly knowing what he was doing, with throbbing temples and an aching heart, and as he crossed the dancing floor he asked if anybody had seen Red Death. Yes, everyone had seen Red Death, but Raoul could not find him and at two o'clock in the morning he turned down the passage behind the scenes that led to Christine Day's dressing-room. His footsteps took him to that room where he had first known suffering. He tapped at the door. There was no answer. He entered, as he had entered when he looked everywhere for the man's voice. The room was empty. A gas jet was burning, turned down low. He saw some writing-paper on a little desk. He thought of writing to Christine, but he heard steps in the passage. He had only time to hide in the inner room, which was separated from the dressing-room by a curtain. Christine entered, took off her mask with a weary movement, and flung it on the table. She sighed and let her pretty head fall into her two hands. What was she thinking of? Of Raoul? No, for Raoul heard her murmur, Poor, poor Eric! At first he thought he must be mistaken. To begin with, he was persuaded that if anyone was to be pitied, it was he, Raoul. It would have been quite natural if she had said, Poor Raoul, after what had happened between them. But shaking her head, she repeated, Poor Eric! What had this Eric to do with Christine's sighs, and why was she pitying Eric when Raoul was so unhappy? Christine began to write deliberately calmly and so placidly that Raoul, who was still trembling from the effects of the tragedy that separated them, was painfully impressed. What coolness, he said to himself. She wrote on, filling two, three, four sheets. Suddenly she raised her head and hid the sheets in her bodice. She seemed to be listening. Raoul also listened. Whence came that strange sound, that distant rhythm? A faint singing seemed to issue from the walls. Yes, it was as though the walls themselves were singing. The song became plainer. The words were now distinguishable. He heard a voice, a very beautiful, very soft, very captivating voice. But for all its softness it remained a male voice. The voice came nearer and nearer. It came through the wall. It approached. And now the voice was in the room, in front of Christine. 
Christine rose and addressed the voice as though speaking to someone. "'Here I am, Eric,' she said. "'I am ready, but you are late.' Raoul, peeping from behind the curtain, could not believe his eyes, which showed him nothing. Christine's face lit up. A smile of happiness appeared upon her bloodless lips, a smile like that of sick people when they receive the first hope of recovery. The voice, without a body, went on singing, and certainly Raoul had never in his life heard anything more absolutely and heroically sweet, more gloriously insidious, more delicate, more powerful, in short, more irresistibly triumphant. He listened to it in a fever and he now began to understand how Christine Day was able to appear one evening before the stupefied audience with accents of a beauty hitherto unknown, of a superhuman exaltation, while doubtless still under the influence of the mysterious and invisible master. The voice was singing the wedding night song from Romeo and Juliet. Raoul saw Christine stretch out her arms to the voice as she had done in Perros churchyard to the invisible violin playing the resurrection of Lazarus, and nothing could describe the passion with which the voice sang, Fate links thee to me for ever and a day. The strains went through Raoul's heart, struggling against the charm that seemed to deprive him of all his will and all his energy and of almost all his lucidity at the moment when he needed them most. He succeeded in drawing back the curtain that hid him, and he walked to where Christine stood. She herself was moving to the back of the room, the whole wall of which was occupied by a great mirror that reflected her image, but not his, for he was just behind her and entirely covered by her. Fate links thee to me for ever and a day. Christine walked toward her image in the glass, and the image came toward her. The two Christines, the real one and the reflection, ended by touching and Raoul put out his arms to clasp the two in one embrace. But by a sort of dazzling miracle that sent him staggering, Raoul was suddenly flung back, while an icy blast swept over his face. He saw not two but four, eight, twenty Christines spinning round him, laughing at him, and fleeing so swiftly that he could not touch one of them. At last everything stood still again, and he saw himself in the glass. But Christine had disappeared. He rushed up to the glass. He struck at the walls. Nobody. And meanwhile the room still echoed with a distant, passionate singing. Fate links thee to me for ever and a day. Which way? Which way had Christine gone? Which way would she return? Would she return? Alas, had she not declared to him that everything was finished, and was the voice not repeating, Fate links thee to me for ever and a day. To me? To whom? Then, worn out, beaten, empty-brained, he sat down on the chair which Christine had just left. Like her, he let his head fall into his hands. When he raised it, the tears were streaming down his young cheeks, real, heavy tears like those which jealous children shed, tears that wept for a sorrow which was in no way fanciful, but which is common to all the lovers on earth, and which he expressed aloud. Who is this Eric? he said. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 
forget the name of the man's voice. The day after Christine had vanished before his eyes in a sort of dazzlement that still made him doubt the evidence of his senses, Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny called to inquire at Mama Valerius's. He came upon a charming picture. Christine herself was seated by the bedside of the old lady, who was sitting up against the pillows, knitting. The pink and white had returned to the young girl's cheeks. The dark rings round her eyes had disappeared. Raoul no longer recognized the tragic face of the day before. If the veil of melancholy over those adorable features had not still appeared to the young man as the last trace of the weird drama in whose toils that mysterious child was struggling, he could have believed that Christine was not its heroine at all. She rose without showing any emotion, and offered him her hand, but Raoul's stupefaction was so great that he stood there, dumbfounded, without a gesture, without a word. "'Well, Monsieur de Chagny,' exclaimed Mama Valerius, "'don't you know our Christine? Her good genius has sent her back to us.' Mama, the girl broke in promptly, while a deep blush mantled to her eyes, I thought, Mama, that there was to be no more question of that. You know there is no such thing as the angel of music. But, child, he gave you lessons for three months. Mama, I have promised to explain everything to you one of these days, and I hope to do so, but you have promised me, until that day, to be silent, and to ask me no more questions, whatever." provided that you promised never to leave me again but have you promised that christine mamma all this cannot interest monsieur de chagny on the contrary mademoiselle said the young man in a voice which he tried to make firm and brave but which still trembled anything that concerns you interests me to an extent which perhaps you will one day understand i do not deny that my surprise equals my pleasure at finding you with your adopted mother and that after what happened between us yesterday after what you said and what i was able to guess i hardly expected to see you here so soon i should be the first to delight at your return if you were not so bent on preserving a secrecy that may be fatal to you and i have been your friend too long not to be alarmed with madame valerius at a disastrous adventure which will remain dangerous so long as we have not unravelled its threads and of which you will certainly end by being the victim christine at these words mama valerius tossed about in her bed what does this mean she cried is christine in danger yes madame said raoul courageously notwithstanding the signs which christine made to him good heavens exclaimed the good simple old woman gasping for breath you must tell me everything christine why did you try to reassure me and what danger is it monsieur de chagny an impostor is abusing her good faith is the angel of music an impostor she told you herself that there is no angel of music. But then what is it in heaven's name? You will be the death of me. There is a terrible mystery around us, madame, around you, around Christine, a mystery much more to be feared than any number of ghosts or genii. Mama Valerius turned a terrified face to Christine, who had already run to her adopted mother and was holding her in her arms. Don't believe him, mummy, don't believe him she repeated. "'Then tell me that you will never leave me again,' implored the widow. Christine was silent, and Raoul resumed. "'That is what you must promise, Christine. It is the only thing that can reassure your mother and me. 
we will undertake not to ask you a single question about the past if you promise us to remain under our protection in future that is an undertaking which i have not asked of you and a promise which i refuse to make to you said the young girl haughtily i am mistress of my own actions monsieur de chagny you have no right to control them and i will beg you to desist henceforth as to what i have done during the last fortnight there is only one man in the world who has the right to demand an account of me my husband well i have no husband and i never mean to marry she threw out her hands to emphasize her words and raoul turned pale not only because of the words which he had heard but because he had caught sight of a plain gold ring on christine's finger you have no husband and yet you wear a wedding ring he tried to seize her hand but she swiftly drew it back that's a present she said blushing once more and vainly striving to hide her embarrassment christine as you have no husband that ring can only have been given by one who hopes to make you his wife why deceive us further why torture me still more that ring is a promise and that promise has been accepted that's what i said exclaimed the old lady and what did she answer madame what i choose said christine driven to exasperation don't you think monsieur that this cross-examination has lasted long enough as far as i am concerned raoul was afraid to let her finish her speech he interrupted her i beg your pardon for speaking as i did mademoiselle you know the good intentions that make me meddle just now in matters which you no doubt think have nothing to do with me but allow me to tell you what i have seen and i have seen more than you suspect christine or what i thought i saw for to tell you the truth i have sometimes been inclined to doubt the evidence of my eyes well what did you see sir or think you saw i saw your ecstasy at the sound of the voice christine the voice that came from the wall or the next room to yours yes your ecstasy and that is what makes me alarmed on your behalf you are under a very dangerous spell and yet it seems that you are aware of the imposture because you say to-day that there is no angel of music in that case christine why did you follow him that time why did you stand up with radiant features as though you were really hearing angels ah it is a very dangerous voice christine for i myself when i heard it was so much fascinated by it that you vanished before my eyes without my seeing which way you passed christine christine in the name of heaven in the name of your father who is in heaven now and who loved you so dearly and who loved me too christine tell us tell your benefactress and me to whom does that voice belong if you do we will save you in spite of yourself come christine the name of the man the name of the man who had the audacity to put a ring on your finger monsieur de chagny the girl declared coldly you shall never know thereupon seeing the hostility with which her ward had addressed the viscount mama valeria suddenly took christine's part and if she does love that man monsieur le vicomte even then it is no business of yours alas madame raoul humbly replied unable to restrain his tears alas i believe that christine really does love him but it is not only that which drives me to despair for what i am not certain of madame is that the man whom christine loves is worthy of her love it is for me to be the judge of that monsieur said christine looking at raoul angrily in the face when a man continued raoul 
adopt such romantic methods to entice a young girl's affections. The man must be either a villain or the girl a fool. Is that it? Christine! Raoul, why do you condemn a man whom you have never seen, whom no one knows, and about whom you yourself know nothing? Yes, Christine, yes, I at least know the name that you thought to keep from me forever. The name of your angel of music, mademoiselle, is Eric. Christine at once betrayed herself. She turned as white as a sheet and stammered, Who told you? You yourself. How do you mean? By pitying him the other night, the night of the masked ball, when you went to your dressing-room, did you not say, Poor Eric? Well, Christine, there was a poor Raoul who overheard you. This is the second time that you have listened behind the door, Monsieur de Chagny. I was not behind the door. I was in the dressing-room, in the inner room, mademoiselle. Oh, unhappy man, moaned the girl, showing every sign of unspeakable terror. Unhappy man, do you want to be killed? Perhaps. Raoul uttered this perhaps with so much love and despair in his voice that Christine could not keep back a sob. She took his hands and looked at him with all the pure affection of which she was capable. "'Raoul,' she said, "'forget the man's voice, and do not even remember its name. You must never try to fathom the mystery of the man's voice.' "'Is the mystery so very terrible?' "'There is no more awful mystery on this earth. Swear to me that you will make no attempt to find out,' she insisted. "'Swear to me that you will never come to my dressing-room unless I send for you.' "'Then you promise to send for me sometimes, Christine?' "'I promise.' "'When?' "'Tomorrow.' then I swear to do as you ask. He kissed her hands and went away, cursing Eric and resolving to be patient. End of chapter 10「Chapter 11 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Above the Trap Doors The next day he saw her at the opera. She was still wearing the plain gold ring. She was gentle and kind to him. She talked to him of the plans which he was forming, of his future, of his career. He told her that the date of the polar expedition had been put forward, and that he would leave France in three weeks, or a month at latest. She suggested almost gaily that he must look upon the voyage with delight as a stage toward his coming fame, and when he replied that fame without love was no attraction in his eyes, she treated him as a child whose sorrows were only short-lived. "'How can you speak so lightly of such serious things?' he asked. "'Perhaps we shall never see each other again. I may die during that expedition.' "'Or I,' she said simply. She no longer smiled or jested. She seemed to be thinking of some new thing that had entered her mind for the first time. Her eyes were all aglow with it. "'What are you thinking of, Christine?' "'I am thinking that we shall not see each other again. And does that make you so radiant? And that, in a month, we shall have to say good-bye for ever. Unless, Christine, we pledge our faith and wait for each other for ever.' She put her hand on his mouth. "'Hush, Raoul. You know there is no question of that.' and we shall never be married. That is understood. She seemed suddenly almost unable to contain an overpowering gaiety. She clapped her hands with childish glee. Raoul stared at her in amazement. 
"'But,' she continued, holding out her two hands to Raoul, or rather giving them to him as though she had suddenly resolved to make him a present of them, "'but if we cannot be married, we can be engaged. Nobody will know but ourselves, Raoul. There have been plenty of secret marriages. Why not a secret engagement? We are engaged, dear, for a month. In a month you will go away, and I can be happy at the thought of that month all my life long. She was enchanted with her inspiration. Then she became serious again. This, she said, is a happiness that will harm no one. Raoul jumped at the idea. He bowed to Christine and said, Mademoiselle, I have the honor to ask for your hand. Why, you have both of them already, my dear betrothed. Oh, Raoul, how happy we shall be. We must play at being engaged all day long. It was the prettiest game in the world, and they enjoyed it like the children that they were. Oh, the wonderful speeches they made to each other, and the eternal vows they exchanged. They played at hearts, as other children might play at ball, only as it was really their two hearts that they flung to and fro, they had to be very, very handy to catch them each time, without hurting them. One day, about a week after the game began, Raoul's heart was badly hurt, and he stopped playing and uttered these wild words, "'I shan't go to the North Pole.' Christine, who in her innocence had not dreamed of such a possibility, suddenly discovered the danger of the game and reproached herself bitterly. She did not say a word in reply to Raoul's remark, and went straight home. This happened in the afternoon, in the singer's dressing-room, where they met every day, and where they amused themselves by dining on three biscuits, two glasses of port, and a bunch of violets. In the evening she did not sing and he did not receive his usual letter, though they had arranged to write to each other daily during that month. The next morning he ran off to Mama Valerius, who told him that Christine had gone away for two days. She had left at five o'clock the day before. Raoul was distracted. He hated Mama Valerius for giving him such news as that with such stupefying calmness. He tried to sound her, but the old lady obviously knew nothing. Christine returned on the following day, she returned in triumph. She renewed her extraordinary success of the gala performance. Since the adventure of the toad, Carlotta had not been able to appear on the stage. The terror of a fresh coac filled her heart and deprived her of all her power of singing, and the theater that had witnessed her incomprehensible disgrace had become odious to her. She contrived to cancel her contract. Day was offered the vacant place for the time. She received thunders of applause in the Jewy. The Viscount, who, of course, was present, was the only one to suffer on hearing the thousand echoes of this fresh triumph, for Christine still wore her plain gold ring. A distant voice whispered in the young man's ear, "'She is wearing the ring again to-night, and you did not give it to her. She gave her soul again to-night, and did not give it to you. If she will not tell you what she has been doing the past two days, you must go and ask Eric.' He ran behind the scenes and placed himself in her way. She saw him, for her eyes were looking for him. She said, "'Quick, quick, come!' and she dragged him to her dressing-room. Raoul at once threw himself on his knees before her. He swore to her that he would go, and he entreated her never again to withhold a single hour of the ideal happiness which she had promised him. She let her tears flow. They kissed like a despairing brother and sister who have been smitten with a common loss and who meet to mourn a dead parent. 
Suddenly she snatched herself from the young man's soft and timid embrace, seemed to listen to something, and with a quick gesture pointed to the door. When he was on the threshold she said, in so low a voice that the Viscount guessed rather than heard her words, "'Tomorrow, my dear betrothed, and be happy, Raoul, I sang for you to-night.' He returned the next day, but those two days of absence had broken the charm of their delightful make-believe. They looked at each other in the dressing-room with their sad eyes, without exchanging a word. Raoul had to restrain himself not to cry out, "'I am jealous! I am jealous! I am jealous!' But she heard him all the same. Then she said, "'Come for a walk, dear. The air will do you good.' Raoul thought that she would propose a stroll in the country, far from that building which he detested as a prison, whose jailer he could feel walking within the walls, the jailer Eric. But she took him to the stage, and made him sit on the wooden curb of a well, in the doubtful peace and coolness of a first scene set for the evening's performance. On another day she wandered with him, hand in hand, along the deserted paths of a garden whose creepers had been cut out by a decorator's skilful hands. It was as though the real sky, the real flowers, the real earth were forbidden her for all time, and she condemned to breathe no other air than that of the theater. An occasional fireman passed, watching over their melancholy idol from afar, and she would drag him above the clouds in the magnificent disorder of the grid, where she loved to make him giddy by running in front of him along the frail bridges among the thousands of ropes fastened to the pulleys, the windlasses, the rollers, in the midst of a regular forest of yards and masts. If he hesitated, she said, with an adorable pout of her lips, "'You, a sailor?' And then they returned to terra firma, that is to say, to some passage that led them to the little girl's dancing school, where brats between six and ten were practicing their steps, in the hope of becoming great dancers one day, covered with diamonds. Meanwhile Christine gave them sweets instead. She took him to the wardrobe and property rooms, took him all over her empire, which was artificial, but immense, covering seventeen stories from the ground floor to the roof, and inhabited by an army of subjects. She moved among them like a popular queen, encouraging them in their labors, sitting down in the workshops, giving words of advice to the workmen whose hands hesitated to cut into the rich stuffs that were to clothe heroes. There were inhabitants of that country who practiced every trade. There were cobblers. There were goldsmiths. All had learned to know her and to love her, for she always interested herself in all their troubles and all their little hobbies. She knew unsuspected corners that were secretly occupied by little old couples. She knocked at their door and introduced Raoul to them as a prince charming who had asked for her hand, and the two of them, sitting on some worm-eaten property, would listen to the legends of the opera, even as in their childhood they had listened to the old Breton tales. Those old people remembered nothing outside the opera. They had lived there for years without number. Past managements had forgotten them palace revolutions had taken no notice of them, the history of France had run its course unknown to them, and nobody recollected their existence. The precious days sped in this way, and Raoul and Christine, by affecting excessive interest in outside matters, strove awkwardly to hide from each other the one thought of their hearts. One fact was certain, that Christine, who until then had shown herself the stronger of the two, became suddenly inexpressibly nervous. 
when on their expeditions she would start running without reason, or else suddenly stop, and her hand, turning ice cold in a moment, would hold the young man back. Sometimes her eyes seemed to pursue imaginary shadows. She cried, This way, and this way, and this way, laughing a breathless laugh that often ended in tears. Then Raoul tried to speak, to question her, in spite of his promises. But even before he had worded his question, she answered feverishly, Nothing, I swear it is nothing. Once, when they were passing before an open trap-door on the stage, Raoul stopped over the dark cavity. You have shown me over the upper part of your empire, Christine, but there are strange stories told of the lower part. Shall we go down? She caught him in her arms, as though she feared to see him disappear down the black hole, and in a trembling voice whispered, Never! I will not have you go there. Besides, it's not mine. Everything that is underground belongs to him. Raoul looked her in the eyes and said roughly, So he lives down there, does he? I never said so. Who told you a thing like that? Come away. I sometimes wonder if you are quite sane, Raoul. You always take things in such an impossible way. Come along. Come. And she literally dragged him away, for he was obstinate and wanted to remain by the trap-door. That hole attracted him. Suddenly the trap-door was closed, and so quickly that they did not even see the hand that worked it, and they remained quite dazed. Perhaps he was there, Raoul said at last. She shrugged her shoulders, but did not seem easy. No, no, it was the trap-door shutters. They must do something, you know. They open and shut the trap-doors without any particular reason. It's like the door-shutters. They must spend their time somehow. But suppose it were he, Christine. No, no, he has shut himself up. He is working. Oh, really, he's working, is he? Yes, he can't open and shut the trap-doors and work at the same time. She shivered. What is he working at? Oh, something terrible, but it's all the better for us. When he's working at that, he sees nothing. He does not eat, drink, or breathe for days and nights at a time. He becomes a living dead man and has no time to amuse himself with the trap-doors. She shivered again. She was still holding him in her arms. Then she sighed and said in her turn, Suppose it were he. Are you afraid of him? No, no, of course not, she said. For all that, on the next day and the following days, Christine was careful to avoid the trap-doors. Her agitation only increased as the hours passed. At last, one afternoon, she arrived very late, with her face so desperately pale and her eyes so desperately red that Raoul resolved to go to all lengths, including that which he foreshadowed when he blurted out that he would not go on the North Pole expedition unless she first told him the secret of the man's voice. "'Hush! Hush! In heaven's name!' suppose he heard you you unfortunate raoul and christine's eyes stared wildly at everything around her i will remove you from his power christine i swear it and you shall not think of him any more is it possible she allowed herself this doubt which was an encouragement while dragging the young man up to the topmost floor of the theatre far very far from the trap-doors i shall hide you in some unknown corner of the world where he cannot come to look for you you will be safe, and then I shall go away as you have sworn never to marry. Christine seized Raoul's hands and squeezed them with incredible rapture, but suddenly becoming alarmed again she turned away her head. Higher, was all she said, higher still, and she dragged him up toward the summit. 
He had difficulty in following her. They were soon under the very roof in the maze of timberwork. They slipped through the buttresses, the rafters, the joists. They ran from beam to beam as they might have run from tree to tree in a forest. And, despite the care which she took to look behind her at every moment, she failed to see a shadow which followed her like her own shadow, which stopped when she stopped, which started again when she did, and which made no more noise than a well-conducted shadow should. As for Raoul, he saw nothing either, for when he had Christine in front of him, nothing interested him that happened behind. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 Apollo's Liar On this way they reached the roof. Christine tripped over it as lightly as a swallow. Their eyes swept the empty space between the three domes and the triangular pediment. She breathed freely over Paris, the whole valley of which was seen at work below. She called Raoul to come quite close to her, and they walked side by side along the zinc streets in the leaden avenues. They looked at their twin shapes in the huge tanks, full of stagnant water, where, in the hot weather, the little boys of the ballet, a score or so, learned to swim and dive. The shadow had followed behind them, clinging to their steps, and the two children little suspected its presence when they at last sat down, trustingly, under the mighty protection of Apollo, who, with a great bronze gesture, lifted his huge lyre to the heart of a crimson sky. It was a gorgeous spring evening. Clouds which had just received their gossamer robe of gold and purple from the setting sun drifted slowly by and Christine said to Raoul, "'Soon we shall go farther and faster than the clouds to the end of the world, and then you will leave me, Raoul. But if, when the moment comes for you to take me away, I refuse to go with you, well, you must carry me off by force.' "'Are you afraid that you will change your mind, Christine?' "'I don't know,' she said, shaking her head in an odd fashion. "'He is a demon,' and she shivered and nestled in his arms with a moan. I am afraid now of going back to live with him, in the ground. What compels you to go back, Christine? If I do not go back to him, terrible misfortunes may happen. But I can't do it. I can't do it. I know one ought to be sorry for people who live underground, but he is too horrible, and yet the time is at hand. I have only a day left, and if I do not go, he will come and fetch me with his voice, and he will drag me with him underground and go on his knees before me with his death's head, and he will tell me that he loves me, and he will cry. Oh, those tears, Raoul, those tears in the two black eye-sockets of the death's head. I cannot see those tears flow again. She wrung her hands in anguish, while Raoul pressed her to his heart. No, no, you shall never again hear him tell you that he loves you. You shall not see his tears. Let us fly, Christine, let us fly at once and he tried to drag her away, then and there. But she stopped him. No, no, she said, shaking her head sadly. Not now. It would be too cruel. Let him hear me sing to-morrow evening, and then we will go away. You must come and fetch me in my dressing-room at midnight, exactly. He will then be waiting for me in the dining-room by the lake. We shall be free, and you shall take me away. You must promise me that, Raoul, even if I refuse. 
for I feel that if I go back this time I shall perhaps never return. And she gave a sigh, to which it seemed to her that another sigh behind her replied, Didn't you hear? Her teeth chattered. No, said Raoul. I heard nothing. It is too terrible, she confessed, to be always trembling like this, and yet we run no danger here. We are at home, in the sky, in open air, in the light. The sun is flaming. The night-birds cannot bear to look at the sun. I have never seen him by daylight. It must be awful. Oh, the first time I saw him, I thought that he was going to die. Why? asked Raoul, really frightened at the aspect which this strange confidence was taking. Because I had seen him. This time Raoul and Christine turned round at the same time. There is someone in pain, said Raoul. Perhaps someone has been hurt. Did you hear? I can't say, Christine confessed. Even when he is not there, my ears are full of his sighs. Still, if you heard... They stood up and looked around them. They were quite alone on the immense lead roof. They sat down again, and Raoul said, Tell me how you saw him first. I had heard him for three months without seeing him. The first time I heard it, I thought, as you did, that that adorable voice was singing in another room. I went out and looked everywhere, but as you know, Raoul, my dressing-room is very much by itself, and I could not find the voice outside my room, whereas it went on steadily inside, and it not only sang, but it spoke to me and answered my questions like a real man's voice, with this difference, that it was as beautiful as the voice of an angel. I had never got the angel of music whom my poor father had promised to send me as soon as he was dead. I really think that Mamma Valerius was a little bit to blame. I told her about it, and she at once said, It must be the angel. At any rate, you can do no harm by asking him. I did so, and the man's voice replied that, Yes, it was the angel's voice, the voice which I was expecting, and which my father had promised me. From that time onward the voice and I became great friends. It asked leave to give me lessons every day. I agreed, and never failed to keep the appointment which it gave me in my dressing-room. You have no idea, though you have heard the voice, of what those lessons were like. No, I have no idea, said Raoul. What was your accompaniment? We were accompanied by a music which I do not know. It was behind the wall, and wonderfully accurate. The boy seemed to understand mine exactly, to know precisely where my father had left off teaching me. In a few weeks' time I hardly knew myself when I sang. I was even frightened. I seemed to dread a sort of witchcraft behind it. But Mamma Valerius reassured me. She said that she knew I was much too simple a girl to give the devil a hold on me. My progress by the voice's own order was kept a secret between the voice, Mamma Valerius, and myself. It was a curious thing, but outside the dressing-room I sang with my ordinary everyday voice, and nobody noticed anything. I did all that the voice asked. It said, Wait and see. We shall astonish Paris. And I waited and lived on in a sort of ecstatic dream. It was then that I saw you for the first time one evening in the house. I was so glad that I never thought of concealing my delight when I reached my dressing-room. Unfortunately, the voice was there before me, and soon noticed by my air that something had happened. It asked what was the matter, and I saw no reason for keeping our story secret or concealing the place which you filled in my heart. Then the voice was silent. 
I called to it, but it did not reply. I begged and entreated, but in vain. I was terrified lest it had gone for good. I wish to heaven it had, dear. That night I went home in a desperate condition. I told Mama Valerius, who said, Why, of course, the voice is jealous. And that, dear, first revealed to me that I loved you. Christine stopped and laid her head on Raoul's shoulder. They sat like that for a moment in silence, and they did not see, did not perceive the movement at a few steps from them of the creeping shadow of two great black wings, a shadow that came along the roof so near, so near them that it could have stifled them by closing over them. The next day, Christine continued with a sigh, I went back to my dressing-room in a very pensive frame of mind. The voice was there, spoke to me with great sadness, and told me plainly that if I must bestow my heart on earth, there was nothing for the voice to do but to go back to heaven. And it said this with such an accent of human sorrow that I ought then and there to have suspected and begun to believe that I was the victim of my deluded senses. But my faith in the voice, with which the memory of my father was so closely intermingled, remained undisturbed. I feared nothing so much as that I might never hear it again. I had thought about my love for you, and realized all the useless danger of it, and I did not even know if you remembered me. Whatever happened, your position in society forbade me to contemplate the possibility of ever marrying you, and I swore to the voice that you were no more than a brother to me, nor ever would be, and that my heart was incapable of any earthly love and that, dear, was why I refused to recognize or see you when I met you on the stage or in the passages. Meanwhile, the hours during which the voice taught me were spent in a divine frenzy, until, at last, the voice said to me, You can now, Christine Day, give to men a little of the music of heaven. I don't know how it was that Carlotta did not come to the theater that night, nor why I was called upon to sing in her stead, but I sang with a rapture I had never known before, and I felt for a moment as if my soul were leaving my body. Oh, Christine, said Raoul, my heart quivered that night at every accent of your voice. I saw the tears stream down your cheeks, and I wept with you. How could you sing, sing like that while crying? I felt myself fainting, said Christine, I closed my eyes. When I opened them, you were by my side. But the voice was there also, Raoul. I was afraid for your sake, and again I would not recognize you and began to laugh when you reminded me that you had picked up my scarf in the sea. Alas, there is no deceiving the voice. The voice recognized you, and the voice was jealous. It said that if I did not love you, I would not avoid you, but treat you like any other old friend. It made me scene upon scene. At last I said to the voice, That will do. I am going to Paris tomorrow to pray on my father's grave, and I shall ask Monsieur Raoul de Chagny to go with me. Do as you please, replied the voice, but I shall be at Paris too, for I am wherever you are, Christine, and if you are still worthy of me, if you have not lied to me, I will play you the resurrection of Lazarus on the stroke of midnight, on your father's tomb, and on your father's violin. That, dear, was how I came to write you the letter that brought you to Paris. How could I have been so beguiled? 
how was it when i saw the personal the selfish point of view of the voice that i did not suspect some impostor alas i was no longer mistress of myself i had become his thing but after all cried raoul you soon came to know the truth why did you not at once rid yourself of that abominable nightmare know the truth raoul rid myself of that nightmare but my poor boy i was not caught in the nightmare until the day when i learned the truth pity me raoul pity me you remember the terrible evening when carlotta thought that she had been turned into a toad on the stage and when the house was suddenly plunged in darkness through the chandelier crashing to the floor there were killed and wounded that night and the whole theatre rang with terrified screams my first thought was for you and the voice i was at once easy where you were concerned for i had seen you in your brother's box and i knew that you were not in danger but the voice had told me that it would be at the performance and i was really afraid for it just as if it had been an ordinary person who was capable of dying i thought to myself the chandelier may have come down upon the voice i was then on the stage and was nearly running into the house to look for the voice among the killed and wounded when i thought that if the voice was safe it would be sure to be in my dressing-room and i rushed to my room the voice was not there i locked my door and with tears in my eyes besought it if it were still alive to manifest itself to me the voice did not reply but suddenly i heard a long beautiful wail which i knew well it is the plaint of lazarus when at the sound of the redeemer's voice he begins to open his eyes and see the light of day it was the music which you and i raoul heard at peros and then the voice began to sing the leading phrase come and believe in me whoso believes in me shall live walk whoso hath believed in me shall never die i cannot tell you the effect which that music had upon me it seemed to command me personally to come to stand up and come to it it retreated and i followed come and believe in me i believed in it i came i came and this was the extraordinary thing my dressing-room as i moved seemed to lengthen out to lengthen out evidently it must have been an effect of mirrors for i had the mirror in front of me and suddenly i was outside the room without knowing how what without knowing how christine christine you must really stop dreaming i was not dreaming dear i was outside my room without knowing how you who saw me disappear from my room one evening may be able to explain it but i cannot i can only tell you that suddenly there was no mirror before me and no dressing-room i was in a dark passage i was frightened and i cried out it was quite dark but for a faint red glimmer at a distant corner of the wall i cried out my voice was the only sound for the singing and the violin had stopped and suddenly a hand was laid on mine or rather a stone-cold bony thing that seized my wrist and did not let go i cried out again an arm took me round the waist and supported me i struggled for a little while and then gave up the attempt i was dragged toward the little red light and then i saw that i was in the hands of a man wrapped in a large cloak and wearing a mask that hid his whole face 
I made one last effort. My limbs stiffened, my mouth opened to scream, but a hand closed it, a hand which I felt on my lips, on my skin, a hand that smelt of death. Then I fainted away. When I opened my eyes we were still surrounded by darkness. A lantern standing on the ground showed a bubbling well. The water splashing from the well disappeared almost at once under the floor on which I was lying, with my head on the knee of the man in the black cloak and the black mask. He was bathing my temples, and his hands smelt of death. I tried to push them away and asked, "'Who are you? Where is the voice?' His only answer was a sigh. Suddenly a hot breath passed over my face, and I perceived a white shape beside the man's black shape in the darkness. The black shape lifted me on to the white shape. A glad neighing greeted my astounded ears, and I murmured, Caesar! The animal quivered. Raoul, I was lying half back on a saddle, and I had recognized the white horse out of the profeta, which I had so often fed with sugar and sweets. I remembered that one evening there was a rumor in the theater that the horse had disappeared and that it had been stolen by the opera ghost. I believed in the voice, but had never believed in the ghost. Now, however, I began to wonder with a shiver whether I was the ghost's prisoner. I called upon the voice to help me, for I should never have imagined that the voice and the ghost were one. You have heard about the opera ghost, have you not, Raoul? Yes, but tell me what happened when you were on the white horse of the Profeta. I made no movement and let myself go. The black shape held me up, and I made no effort to escape. A curious feeling of peacefulness came over me, and I thought that I must be under the influence of some cordial. I had the full command of my senses, and my eyes became used to the darkness which was lit here and there by fitful gleams. I calculated that we were in a narrow circular gallery, probably running all round the opera, which is immense underground. I had once been down into those cellars, but had stopped at the third floor, though there were two lower still, large enough to hold a town. But the figures of which I caught sight had made me run away. There are demons down there, quite black, standing in front of boilers, and they wield shovels and pitchforks and poke up fires and stir up flames, and if you come too near them they frighten you by suddenly opening the red mouths of their furnaces. Well, while Caesar was quietly carrying me on his back, I saw those black demons in the distance, looking quite small, in front of the red fires of their furnaces. They came into sight, disappeared, and came into sight again as we went on our winding way. At last they disappeared altogether. The shape was still holding me up, and Caesar walked on, unled and sure-footed. I could not tell you even approximately how long this ride lasted. I only know that we seemed to turn and turn, and often went down a spiral stair into the very heart of the earth. Even then it may be that my head was turning, but I don't think so. No, my mind was quite clear. At last Caesar raised his nostrils, sniffed the air, and quickened his pace a little. I felt a moistness in the air, and Caesar stopped. The darkness had lifted. A sort of bluey light surrounded us. We were on the edge of a lake, whose leaden waters stretched into the distance, into the darkness. But the blue light lit up the bank, and I saw a little boat fastened to an iron ring on the wharf. A boat? Yes, but I knew all that existed, and that there was nothing supernatural about that underground lake and boat. 
but think of the exceptional conditions in which I arrived upon that shore. I don't know whether the effects of the cordial had worn off when the man's shape lifted me into the boat, but my terror began all over again. My gruesome escort must have noticed it, for he sent Caesar back, and I heard his hoofs trampling up a staircase, while the man jumped into the boat, untied the rope that held it, and seized the oars. He rowed with a quick, powerful stroke, and his eyes under the mask never left me. We slipped across the noiseless water in the bluey light which I told you of. Then we were in the dark again, and we touched shore, and I was once more taken up in the man's arms. I cried aloud, and then suddenly I was silent, dazed by the light. Yes, a dazzling light in the mist of which I had been put down. I sprang to my feet. I was in the middle of a drawing-room that seemed to me to be decorated, adorned and furnished with nothing but flowers, flowers both magnificent and stupid, because of the silk ribbons that tied them to baskets, like those which they sell in the shops on the boulevards. They were much too civilized flowers, like those which I used to find in my dressing-room after a first night, and in the midst of all these flowers stood the black shape of the man in the mask, with arms crossed, and he said, "'Don't be afraid, Christine. You are in no danger.' It was the voice. My anger equaled my amazement. I rushed at the mask and tried to snatch it away so as to see the face of the voice. The man said, you are in no danger so long as you do not touch the mask. And taking me gently by the wrists, he forced me into a chair, and then went down on his knees before me and said nothing more. His humility gave me back some of my courage, and the light restored me to the realities of life. However extraordinary the adventure might be, I was now surrounded by mortal, visible, and tangible things the furniture, the hangings, the candles, the vases, and the very flowers in their baskets, of which I could almost have told whence they came and what they cost, were bound to confine my imagination to the limits of a drawing-room quite as commonplace as any that, at least, had the excuse of not being in the cellars of the opera. I had no doubt to do with a terrible eccentric person who in some mysterious fashion had succeeded in taking up his abode there, under the opera house, five stories below the level of the ground. And the voice, the voice which I had recognized under the mask, was on its knees before me, was a man. And I began to cry. The man, still kneeling, must have understood the cause of my tears, for he said, "'It is true, Christine.' I am not an angel, nor a genius, nor a ghost. I am Eric. Christine's narrative was again interrupted. An echo behind them seemed to repeat the word after her. Eric. What echo? They both turned round and saw that night had fallen. Raoul made a movement as though to rise, but Christine kept him beside her. Don't go, she said. I want you to know everything here. But why here, Christine? I'm afraid of your catching cold. We have nothing to fear except the trap-doors, dear, and here we are miles away from the trap-doors, and I am not allowed to see you outside the theater. This is not the time to annoy him. We must not arouse his suspicion. Christine, Christine, something tells me that we are wrong to wait till tomorrow evening, and that we ought to fly at once. I tell you that if he does not hear me sing to-morrow it will cause him infinite pain. 
It is difficult not to cause him pain and yet to escape from him for good. You are right in that, Raoul, for certainly he will die of my flight. And she added in a dull voice, But then it counts both ways, for we risk his killing us. Does he love you so much? He would commit murder for me. But one can find out where he lives. One can go in search of him. Now that we know that Eric is not a ghost, one can speak to him and force him to answer. Christine shook her head. No, no, there is nothing to be done with Eric except to run away. Then why, when you were able to run away, did you go back to him? Because I had to, and you will understand that when I tell you how I left him. Oh, I hate him, cried Raoul. And you, Christine, tell me, do you hate him too? No, said Christine simply. No, of course not. Why, you love him. Your fear, your terror, all of that is just love, and love of the most exquisite kind, the kind which people do not admit even to themselves, said Raoul bitterly, the kind that gives you a thrill when you think of it. Picture it. A man who lives in a palace underground and he gave a leer. "'Then you want me to go back there,' said the young girl cruelly. "'Take care, Raoul. I have told you. I should never return.' There was an appalling silence between the three of them, the two who spoke and the shadow that listened behind them. "'Before answering that,' said Raoul, at last, speaking very slowly, "'I should like to know with what feeling he inspires you.' since you do not hate him. With horror, she said. That is the terrible thing about it. He fills me with horror, and I do not hate him. How can I hate him, Raoul? Think of Eric at my feet, in the house on the lake underground. He accuses himself. He curses himself. He implores my forgiveness. He confesses his cheat. He loves me. He lays at my feet an immense and tragic love. He has carried me off for love. He has imprisoned me with him underground for love. But he respects me. He crawls, he moans, he weeps. And when I stood up, Raoul, and told him that I could only despise him if he did not then and there give me my liberty, he offered it. He offered to show me the mysterious road. Only, only he rose too, and I was made to remember that though he was not an angel, nor a ghost, nor a genius, he remained the voice, for he sang, and I listened and stayed. That night we did not exchange another word. He sang me to sleep. When I woke up I was alone, lying on a sofa in a simply furnished little bedroom with an ordinary mahogany bedstead, lit by a lamp standing on the marble top of an old Louis-Philippe chest of drawers. I soon discovered that I was a prisoner and that the only outlet from my room led to a very comfortable bathroom. On returning to the bedroom I saw on the chest of drawers a note in red ink which said, My dear Christine, you need have no concern as to your fate. You have no better nor more respectful friend in the world than myself. You are alone at present in this home which is yours. I am going out shopping to fetch you all the things that you can need. I felt sure that I had fallen into the hands of a madman. I ran round my little apartment, looking for a way of escape which I could not find. 
I upbraided myself for my absurd superstition which had caused me to fall into the trap. I felt inclined to laugh and to cry at the same time. This was the state of mind in which Eric found me. After giving three taps on the wall, he walked in quietly through a door which I had not noticed and which he left open. He had his arms full of boxes and parcels and arranged them on the bed in a leisurely fashion, while I overwhelmed him with abuse and called upon him to take off his mask if it covered the face of an honest man. He replied serenely, "'You shall never see Eric's face,' and he reproached me with not having finished dressing at that time of day. He was good enough to tell me that it was two o'clock in the afternoon. He said he would give me half an hour, and while he spoke, wound up my watch and set it for me, after which he asked me to come to the dining-room where a nice lunch was waiting for us. I was very angry, slammed the door in his face, and went to the bathroom. When I came out again, feeling greatly refreshed, Eric said that he loved me, but that he would never tell me so except when I allowed him, and that the rest of the time would be devoted to music. "'What do you mean by the rest of the time?' I asked. Five days,' he said with decision. I asked him if I should then be free, and he said, "'You will be free, Christine, for when those five days are past you will have learned not to see me, and then from time to time you will come to see your poor Eric.' He pointed to a chair opposite him at a small table, and I sat down, feeling greatly perturbed. However, I ate a few prawns and the wing of a chicken and drank half a glass of toquet, which he had himself, he told me, brought from the Conisberg cellars. Eric did not eat or drink. I asked him what his nationality was and if that name of Eric did not point to his Scandinavian origin. He said that he had no name and no country and that he had taken the name of Eric by accident. After lunch he rose and gave me the tips of his fingers, saying he would like to show me over his flat, but I snatched away my hand and gave a cry. What I had touched was cold and at the same time bony, and I remembered that his hand smelt of death. Oh, forgive me, he moaned, and he opened a door before me. This is my bedroom, if you care to see it. It is rather curious. His manners— his words, his attitude gave me confidence, and I went in without hesitation. I felt as if I were entering the room of a dead person. The walls were all hung with black, but instead of the white trimmings that usually set off that funereal upholstery, there was an enormous stave of music with the notes of the dies irae, many times repeated. In the middle of the room was a canopy, from which hung curtains of red brocaded stuff and under the canopy an open coffin. "'That is where I sleep,' said Eric. "'One has to get used to everything in life, even to eternity. The sight upset me so much that I turned away my head. Then I saw the keyboard of an organ which filled one whole side of the walls. On the desk was a music-book covered with red notes. I asked leave to look at it, and read, "'Don Juan Triumphant.' "'Yes,' he said. "'I compose sometimes. "'I began that work twenty years ago. "'When I have finished, "'I shall take it away with me in that coffin "'and never wake up again.' "'You must work at it as seldom as you can,' I said. "'He replied, "'I sometimes work at it for fourteen days and nights together, "'during which I live on music only, 
and then I rest for years at a time. "'Will you play me something out of your Don Juan triumphant?' I asked, thinking to please him. "'You must never ask me that,' he said in a gloomy voice. "'I will play you Mozart, if you like, which will only make you weep. But my Don Juan, Christine, burns, and yet he is not struck by fire from heaven.' Thereupon we returned to the drawing-room. I noticed that there was no mirror in the entire apartment. I was going to remark upon this, but Eric had already sat down to the piano. He said, You see, Christine, there is some music that is so terrible that it consumes all those who approach it. Fortunately you have not come to that music yet, for you would lose all your pretty coloring, and nobody would know you when you return to Paris. Let us sing something from the opera, Christine Day. He spoke these last words as though he were flinging an insult at me. What did you do? I had no time to think about the meaning he put into his words. We at once began the duet in Othello, and already the catastrophe was upon us. I sang Desdemona with a despair, a terror which I had never displayed before. As for him, his voice thundered forth his revengeful soul at every note. Love, jealousy, hatred burst out around us in harrowing cries. Eric's black mask made me think of the natural mask of the Moor of Venice. He was Othello himself. Suddenly I felt a need to see beneath the mask. I wanted to know the face of the voice, and with a movement which I was utterly unable to control, swiftly my fingers tore away the mask. Oh, horror! 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 Christine stopped at the thought of the vision that had scared her, while the echoes of the night, which had repeated the name of Eric, now thrice moaned the cry, Horror! 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 Raoul and Christine, clasping each other closely, raised their eyes to the stars that shone in a clear and peaceful sky. Raoul said, Strange, Christine, that this calm, soft night should be so full of plaintive sounds. One would think that it was sorrowing with us. When you know the secret, Raoul, your ears, like mine, will be full of lamentations. She took Raoul's protecting hands in hers, and with a long shiver continued. Yes, if I lived to be a hundred, I should always hear the superhuman cry of grief and rage which he uttered when the terrible sight appeared before my eyes. Raoul, you have seen death's heads when they have been dried and withered by the centuries, and perhaps if you were not the victim of a nightmare, you saw his death's head at Peros and then you saw red death stalking about at the last masked ball. But all those death's heads were motionless, and their dumb horror was not alive. But imagine, if you can, red death's mask suddenly coming to life in order to express with the four black holes of its eyes, its nose and its mouth, the extreme anger, the mighty fury of a demon and not a ray of light from the sockets, for as I learned later you cannot see his blazing eyes except in the dark. I fell back against the wall, and he came up to me, grinding his teeth, and as I fell upon my knees he hissed mad, incoherent words and curses at me. Leaning over me he cried, Look, you want to see, 
see feast your eyes glut your soul on my cursed ugliness look at eric's face now you know the face of the voice you were not content to hear me eh you wanted to know what i looked like oh you women are so inquisitive well are you satisfied i'm a very good-looking fellow eh when a woman has seen me as you have she belongs to me she loves me forever i am a kind of don juan you know and drawing himself up to his full height with his hand on his hip wagging the hideous thing that was his head on his shoulders he roared look at me i am don juan triumphant and when i turned away my head and begged for mercy he drew it to him brutally twisting his dead fingers into my hair enough enough cried raoul i will kill him in heaven's name christine tell me where the dining-room on the lake is i must kill him oh be quiet raoul if you want to know yes i want to know how and why you went back i must know but in any case i will kill him oh raoul listen listen he dragged me by my hair and then and then oh it is too horrible well what out with it exclaimed raoul fiercely out with it quick then he hissed at me ah i frighten you do i i dare say perhaps you think that i have another mask eh and that this this my head is a mask well tear it off as you did the other come come along i insist your hands your hands give me your hands and he seized my hands and dug them into his awful face he tore his flesh with my nails tore his terrible dead flesh with my nails no he shouted while his throat throbbed and panted like a furnace know that i am built up of death from head to foot and that it is a corpse that loves you and adores you and will never never leave you look i am not laughing now i am crying crying for you christine who have torn off my mask and who therefore can never leave me again as long as you thought me handsome you could have come back i know you would have come back but now that you know my hideousness you would run away for good so i shall keep you here why did you want to see me oh mad christine who wanted to see me when my own father never saw me and when my mother so as not to see me made me a present of my first mask he had let go of me at last, and was dragging himself about on the floor, uttering terrible sobs, and then he crawled away like a snake, went into his room, closed the door, and left me alone to my reflections. Presently I heard the sound of the organ, and then I began to understand Eric's contemptuous phrase when he spoke about opera music. What I now heard was utterly different from what I had heard up to then his don juan triumphant for i had not a doubt but that he had rushed to his masterpiece to forget the horror of the moment seemed to me at first one long awful magnificent sob but little by little it expressed every emotion every suffering of which mankind is capable 
It intoxicated me, and I opened the door that separated us. Eric rose as I entered, but dared not turn in my direction. Eric, I cried, show me your face without fear. I swear that you are the most unhappy and sublime of men, and if ever again I shiver when I look at you, it will be because I am thinking of the splendor of your genius. Then Eric turned round, for he believed me, and I also had faith in myself. He fell at my feet with words of love, with words of love in his dead mouth and the music had ceased. He kissed the hem of my dress, and did not see that I closed my eyes. What more can I tell you, dear? You now know the tragedy. It went on for a fortnight, a fortnight during which I lied to him. My lies were as hideous as the monster who inspired them, but they were the price of my liberty. I burned his mask, and I managed so well that even when he was not singing he tried to catch my eye like a dog sitting by its master. He was my faithful slave, and paid me endless little attentions. Gradually I gave him such confidence that he ventured to take me walking on the banks of the lake, and to row me in the boat on its leaden waters. Toward the end of my captivity he let me out through the gates that closed the underground passages in the Rue Scribe. Here a carriage awaited us and took us to the Bois. The night when we met you was nearly fatal to me, for he is terribly jealous of you, and I had to tell him that you were soon going away. Then at last, after a fortnight of that horrible captivity, during which I was filled with pity, enthusiasm, despair, and horror by turns, he believed me when I said, I will come back. "'And you went back, Christine,' groaned Raoul. "'Yes, dear, and I must tell you that it was not his frightful threats when setting me free that helped me to keep my word, but the harrowing sob which he gave on the threshold of the tomb. That sob attached me to the unfortunate man more than I myself suspected when saying good-bye to him. Poor Eric! Poor Eric!' Christine, said Raoul, rising, you tell me that you love me, but you had recovered your liberty hardly a few hours before you returned to Eric. Remember the masked ball. Yes, and do you remember those hours I passed with you, Raoul, to the great danger of both of us? I doubted your love for me during those hours. Do you doubt it still, Raoul? Then know that each of my visits to Eric increased my horror of him, for each of those visits, instead of calming him as I hoped, made him mad with love. And I am so frightened, so frightened. You are frightened, but do you love me? If Eric were good-looking, would you love me, Christine? She rose in her turn, put her two trembling arms round the young man's neck, and said, Oh, my betrothed of a day, if I did not love you, I would not give you my lips. Take them for the first time and the last. He kissed her lips, but the night that surrounded them was rent asunder. They fled as at the approach of a storm, and their eyes, filled with dread of Eric, showed them, before they disappeared, high up above them, an immense night-bird that stared at them with its blazing eyes, and seemed to cling to the string of Apollo's lyre. End of chapter 12
Chapter Thirteen of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux, translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: A Master Stroke of the Trapdoor Lover. Raoul and Christine ran, eager to escape from the roof and the blazing eyes that showed only in the dark, and they did not stop before they came to the eighth floor on the way down. There was no performance at the opera that night, and the passages were empty. Suddenly a queer-looking form stood before them and blocked the road. "'No, not this way!' and the form pointed to another passage by which they were to reach the wings. Raoul wanted to stop and ask for an explanation, but the form, which wore a sort of long frock-coat and a pointed cap, said, "'Quick! Go away! Quickly!' Christine was already dragging Raoul, compelling him to start running again. "'But who is he? Who is that man?' he asked. Christine replied, "'It's the Persian.' "'What's he doing here?' "'Nobody knows. He is always in the opera. You are making me run away for the first time in my life. If we really saw Eric, what I ought to have done was to nail him to Apollo's lyre, just as we nailed the owls to the walls of our Breton farms, and there would have been no more question of him.' "'My dear Raoul,' you would first have had to climb up to Apollo's lyre. That is no easy matter. The blazing eyes were there. Oh, you are getting like me now, seeing him everywhere. What I took for blazing eyes was probably a couple of stars shining through the strings of the lyre. And Christine went down another floor, with Raoul following her. As you have quite made up your mind to go, Christine, I assure you it would be better to go at once. Why wait for tomorrow? He may have heard us to-night. No, no, he is working, I tell you, at his Don Juan triumphant, and not thinking of us. You're so sure of that you keep on looking behind you. Come to my dressing-room. Hadn't we better meet outside the opera? Never, till we go away for good. It would bring us bad luck if I did not keep my word. I promised him to see you only here. It's a good thing for me that he allowed you even that. Do you know— said Raoul bitterly, that it was very plucky of you to let us play at being engaged. Why, my dear, he knows all about it, he said. I trust you, Christine. Monsieur de Chagny is in love with you, and is going abroad. Before he goes I want him to be as happy as I am. Are people so unhappy when they love? Yes, Christine, when they love and are not sure of being loved. They came to Christine's dressing-room. "'Why do you think that you are safer in this room than on the stage?' asked Raoul. "'You heard him through the walls here. Therefore he can certainly hear us.' "'No. He gave me his word not to be behind the walls of my dressing-room again, and I believe Eric's word. This room and my bedroom on the lake are for me, exclusively, and not to be approached by him. How can you have gone from this room into that dark passage, Christine? Suppose we try to repeat your movements, shall we?' It is dangerous, dear, for the glass might carry me off again, and, instead of running away, I should be obliged to go to the end of the secret passage to the lake, and there call Eric. Would he hear you? Eric will hear me wherever I call him. He told me so. He is a very curious genius. You must not think, Raoul, that he is simply a man who amuses himself by living underground. He does things that no other man could do. He knows things which nobody in the world knows. Take care, Christine. You are making a ghost of him again. No, 
he is not a ghost he is a man of heaven and earth that is all a man of heaven and earth that is all a nice way to speak of him and are you still resolved to run away from him yes to-morrow to-morrow you will have no resolve left then raoul you must run away with me in spite of myself is that understood i shall be here at twelve to-morrow night i shall keep my promise whatever happens you say that after listening to the performance he is to wait for you in the dining-room on the lake yes and how are you to reach him if you don't know how to go out by the glass why by going straight to the edge of the lake christine opened a box took out an enormous key and showed it to raoul what's that he asked the key of the gate to the underground passage in the rue scribe i understand christine it leads straight to the lake give it to me christine will you never she said that would be treacherous suddenly christine changed color a mortal pallor overspread her features oh heavens she cried eric eric have pity on me hold your tongue said raoul you told me he could hear you but the singer's attitude became more and more inexplicable she wrung her fingers repeating with a distraught air oh heaven oh heaven but what is it what is it raoul implored the ring the gold ring he gave me oh so eric gave you that ring you know he did raoul but what you don't know is that when he gave it to me he said i give you back your liberty christine on condition that this ring is always on your finger as long as you keep it you will be protected against all danger and eric will remain your friend but woe to you if you ever part with it for eric will have his revenge my dear the ring is gone woe to us both they both looked for the ring but could not find it christine refused to be pacified it was while i gave you that kiss up above under apollo's lyre she said the ring must have slipped from my finger and dropped into the street we can never find it and what misfortunes are in store for us now oh to run away let us run away at once raoul insisted once more she hesitated he thought that she was going to say yes then her bright pupils became dimmed and she said no to-morrow and she left him hurriedly still ringing and rubbing her fingers as though she hoped to bring the ring back like that raoul went home greatly perturbed at all that he had heard if i don't save her from the hands of that humbug he said aloud as he went to bed she is lost but i shall save her he put out his lamp and felt a need to insult eric in the dark thrice over he shouted humbug 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 but suddenly he raised himself on his elbow a cold sweat poured from his temples two eyes like blazing coals had appeared at the foot of his bed they stared at him fixedly terribly in the darkness of the night raoul was no coward and yet he trembled he put out a groping hesitating hand toward the table by his bedside he found the matches and lit his candle the eyes disappeared still uneasy in his mind he thought to himself she told me that his eyes only showed in the dark his eyes have disappeared in the light but he may be there still and he rose hunted about went round the room he looked under his bed like a child then he thought himself absurd got into bed again and blew out the candle 
the eyes reappeared. He sat up and stared back at them with all the courage he possessed. Then he cried, Is that you, Eric? Man, genius, or ghost? Is it you? He reflected, If it's he, he's on the balcony. Then he ran to the chest of drawers and groped for his revolver. He opened the balcony window, looked out, saw nothing, and closed the window again. He went back to bed, shivering, for the night was cold, and put the revolver on the table within his reach. The eyes were still there at the foot of the bed. Were they between the bed and the window-pane, or behind the pane, that is to say, on the balcony? That was what Raoul wanted to know. He also wanted to know if those eyes belonged to a human being. He wanted to know everything. Then, patiently, he seized his revolver and took aim. He aimed a little above the two eyes. Surely, if they were eyes, and if above those two eyes there was a forehead, and if Raoul was not too clumsy, the shot made a terrible din amid the silence of the slumbering house, and while footsteps came hurrying along the passages, Raoul sat up with outstretched arm, ready to fire again, if need be. This time the two eyes had disappeared. Servants appeared, carrying lights. Count Felipe, terribly anxious. What is it? I think I have been dreaming, replied the young man. I fired at two stars that kept me from sleeping. You're raving. Are you ill? For heaven's sakes, tell me, Raoul, what happened? And the Count seized hold of the revolver. No, no, I'm not raving. Besides, we shall soon see. He got out of bed, put on a dressing-gown and slippers, took a light from the hands of a servant, and opening the window stepped out on the balcony. The Count saw that the window had been pierced by a bullet at a man's height. Raoul was leaning over the balcony with his candle. "'Aha!' he said. "'Blood! Blood! Here! There! More blood! That's a good thing! A ghost who bleeds is less dangerous!' he grinned. "'Raoul! Raoul! Raoul!' The Count was shaking him as though he were trying to waken a sleepwalker. "'But, my dear brother, I'm not asleep,' Raoul protested impatiently. "'You can see the blood for yourself. I thought I had been dreaming and firing at two stars. It was Eric's eyes, and here is his blood. After all, perhaps I was wrong to shoot, and Christine is quite capable of never forgiving me. All this would not have happened if I had drawn the curtains before going to bed. Raoul, have you suddenly gone mad? Wake up! What? Still? You would do better to help me find Eric, for, after all, a ghost who bleeds can always be found. The Count's valet said, That is so, sir. There is blood on the balcony. The other man's servant brought a lamp, by the light of which they examined the balcony carefully. The marks of blood followed the rail till they reached a gutter-spout. Then they went up the gutter-spout. "'My dear fellow,' said Count Philippe, "'you have fired at a cat.' "'The misfortune is,' said Raoul, with a grin, "'that it's quite possible. With Eric you never know. Is it Eric? Is it the cat? Is it the ghost? No, with Eric you can't tell.' Raoul went on making this strange sort of remarks, which corresponded so intimately and logically with the preoccupation of his brain, and which at the same time tended to persuade many people that his mind was unhinged. The Count himself was seized with this idea, and later the examining magistrate, on receiving the report of the commissary of police, came to the same conclusion. "'Who is Eric?' asked the Count, pressing his brother's hand. "'He is my rival.' and if he's not dead it's a pity 
He dismissed the servants with a wave of the hand, and the two Chagnys were left alone. But the men were not out of earshot before the Count's valet heard Raoul say, distinctly and emphatically, I shall carry off Christine Day to-night. This phrase was afterward repeated to Monsieur Fora, the examining magistrate, but no one ever knew exactly what passed between the two brothers at this interview. The servants declared that this was not their first quarrel. Their voices penetrated the wall, and it was always an actress called Christine Day that was in question. At breakfast, the early morning breakfast, which the Count took in his study, Philippe sent for his brother. Raoul arrived silent and gloomy. The scene was a very short one. Philippe handed his brother a copy of the epoch and said, Read that. The Viscount read, The latest news in the Faubourg is that there is a promise of marriage between Mademoiselle Christine Day, the opera singer, and Monsieur le Comte Raoul de Chagny. If the gossips are to be credited, Count Philippe has sworn that, for the first time on record, the Chagny shall not keep their promise. But as love is all-powerful, at the opera as, and even more than elsewhere, we wonder how Count Philippe intends to prevent the Viscount, his brother, from leading the new Margarita to the altar. The two brothers are said to adore each other, but the Count is curiously mistaken if he imagines that brotherly love will triumph over love, pure and simple. "'You see, Raoul,' said the Count, "'you are making us ridiculous. That little girl has turned your head with her ghost stories.' The Viscount had evidently repeated Christine's narrative to his brother during the night. All that he now said was, "'Good-bye, Philippe. Have you quite made up your mind? You are going to-night, with her?' No reply. "'Surely you will not do anything so foolish. I shall know how to prevent you.' "'Good-bye, Philippe,' said the Viscount again, and left the room. This scene was described to the examining magistrate by the Count himself, who did not see Raoul again until that evening at the opera, a few minutes before Christine's disappearance. Raoul, in fact, devoted the whole day to his preparations for the flight, the horses, the carriage, the coachman, the provisions, the luggage, the money required for the journey, the road to be taken, he had resolved not to go by train so as to throw the ghost off the scent, all this had to be settled and provided for, and it occupied him until nine o'clock at night. At nine o'clock a sort of travelling barouche, with the curtains of its windows close down, took its place in the rank on the rotunda side. It was drawn by two powerful horses, driven by a coachman, whose face was almost concealed in the long folds of a muffler. In front of this travelling carriage were three Bruffhams, belonging respectively to Carlotta, who had suddenly returned to Paris, to Sorelli, and, at the head of the rank, to Comte Philippe de Chagny. No one left the barouche. The coachman remained on his box, and the three other coachmen remained on theirs. A shadow in a long black cloak and a soft black felt hat passed along the pavement between the rotunda and the carriages examined the barouche carefully, went up to the horses and the coachman, and then moved away without saying a word. The magistrate afterward believed that this shadow was that of the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, but I do not agree, seeing that that evening, as every evening, the Vicomte de Chagny was wearing a tall hat, which hat, besides, was subsequently found. 
I am more inclined to think that the shadow was that of the ghost, who knew all about the whole affair, as the reader will soon perceive. They were giving Faust, as it happened, before a splendid house. The Faubourg was magnificently represented, and the paragraph in that morning's epoch had already produced its effect, for all eyes were turned to the box in which Count Philippe sat alone, apparently in a very indifferent and careless frame of mind. The feminine element in the brilliant audience seemed curiously puzzled and the viscount's absence gave rise to any amount of whispering behind the fans. Christine Day met with a rather cold reception. That special audience could not forgive her for aiming so high. The singer noticed this unfavorable attitude of a portion of the house, and was confused by it. The regular frequenters of the opera, who pretended to know the truth about the Viscount's love story, exchanged significant smiles at certain passages in Marguerita's part, and they made a show of turning and looking at Felipe de Chagny's box when Christine sang, I wish I could but know who was he that addressed me, if he was noble, or at least what his name is. The Count sat with his chin on his hand and seemed to pay no attention to these manifestations. He kept his eyes fixed on the stage, but his thoughts appeared to be far away. Christine lost her self-assurance more and more. She trembled. She felt on the verge of a breakdown. Carolus Fonta wondered if she was ill, if she could keep the stage until the end of the garden act. In the front of the house people remembered the catastrophe that had befallen Carlotta at the end of that act and the historic quoi which had momentarily interrupted her career in Paris. Just then Carlotta made her entrance in a box facing the stage, a sensational entrance. Poor Christine raised her eyes upon this fresh subject of excitement. She recognized her rival. She thought she saw a sneer on her lips. That saved her. She forgot everything in order to triumph once more. From that moment the prima donna sang with all her heart and soul. She tried to surpass all that she had done till then, and she succeeded. In the last act, when she began the invocation to the angels, she made all the members of the audience feel as though they too had wings. In the center of the amphitheater a man stood up and remained standing facing the singer. It was Raoul. Holy angel in heaven blessed! And Christine, her arms outstretched, her throat filled with music, the glory of her hair falling over her bare shoulders, uttered the divine cry, My spirit longs with thee to rest. It was at that moment that the stage was suddenly plunged in darkness. It happened so quickly that the spectators hardly had time to utter a sound of stupefaction, for the gas at once lit up the stage again but Christine Day was no longer there. What had become of her? What was that miracle? All exchanged glances without understanding, and the excitement at once reached its height. Nor was the tension any less great on the stage itself. Men rushed from the wings to the spot where Christine had been singing that very instant. The performance was interrupted amid the greatest disorder. Where had Christine gone? What witchcraft had snatched her away before the eyes of thousands of enthusiastic onlookers and from the arms of Carolus Fonta himself? It was as though the angels had really carried her up to rest. Raoul, still standing up in the amphitheater, had uttered a cry, 
Count Felipe had sprung to his feet in his box. People looked at the stage, at the Count, at Raoul, and wondered if this curious event was connected in any way with the paragraph in that morning's paper, but Raoul hurriedly left his seat. The Count disappeared from his box, and while the curtain was lowered, the subscribers rushed to the door that led behind the scenes. The rest of the audience waited amid an indescribable hubbub. Everyone spoke at once. Everyone tried to suggest an explanation of the extraordinary incident. At last the curtain rose slowly, and Carolus Fonta stepped to the conductor's desk, and in a sad and serious voice said, "'Ladies and gentlemen, an unprecedented event has taken place, and thrown us into a state of the greatest alarm. Our sister artist, Christine Day, has disappeared before our eyes, and nobody can tell us how.'" End of chapter 13「What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. » Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.